In the AM, five minutes after 6 AM on a Tuesday. My name is Nachum Siegel. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's uh, Tuesday, July 28th, the 7th of Menachem Av. Tomorrow's Erev Tishabov. We are getting closer and closer to the big fest, which begins tomorrow night. Friday will be our uh, Erev Shabbos Nachamu program, back to our regular schedule. Next week's a very, very active week for us. Uh, number one, we announce our big month of contests brought to you by Aaron's Casino Farms and Aaron's West Orange. We will um, broadcast Monday's show from YomenCSY, the YomenCSY 2020 version. We'll broadcast Wednesday's show from one of the NCSY summer programs, again, NCSY summer programs 2020 version. And Tuesday, Danielle Renoff, author of Peas, Love, and Carrots, is our special guest as we talk about the brand new book that has sold tens of of thousands of copies already. People are just getting it now in their homes, but already pre-ordered. Uh, tens of thousands have been ordered from Artscroll and Artscroll.com. So all of that is happening uh, over the next few days here at JM in the AM. Uh, and I thank you very much for uh, tuning in and being part of what we always refer to as a uh, wonderful radio experience. Uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine is the centerpiece of our nine days programming. The series is entitled The Challenge of Secularism, the specific lecture about the life of Harav Shumshan Raphael Hirsch. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. The uh, biography that life that we're going to discuss in tonight's biography is that of the famous and renowned Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, who has had an effect uh, not only on his generation, but in the hundred years since his death, has had a great effect on the Jewish world generally, on the Orthodox Jewish world particularly, and who remains uh, a mystery to us uh, because of the fact that his accomplishments were so legendary, and uh, yet to a certain extent they were non-transferable. Uh, a great deal of that has to do with 1860, 1870, 1880 Germany. The uh, climate, the uh, environment, the civilization that was uh, 19th century Wilhelminen uh, Germany, uh, is something that we, a hundred years later, uh, cannot even imagine. It's so far removed from the society that we know today, and certainly far removed from our thoughts regarding Germany. Uh, Germany that 50 years after the death of Hirsch, only 50 years after the death of Hirsch, 
would destroy its Jewish population and would come to symbolize everything that was uh, ignoble and uh, cruel and vicious and base in human society. There are no, there's no vocabulary to describe the era of 1933 to 1945 in Hitler's Germany. Uh, was in the 19th century in the forefront of all uh, liberal, uh, civilized, artistic, cultural progress in Germany. That's really what makes the uh, matter so astounding, the comparison so uh, unbelievable, because if one would have to choose a country where it was least likely to happen, uh, many people would have voted for Germany. Russia was far more oppressive to the Jews in the 19th century. And uh, the amount of bigotry suffered by Jewish immigrants on their arrival in New York in the 19th century was greater than the amount of bigotry suffered by Jews in Germany in the 19th century. And that somehow uh, the demon could be loosed murder could be committed on such a grand scale and that an entire civilized nation would go along with it, that was unimaginable. And therefore, a great deal of what is said about Samson Raphael Hirsch is to us not understandable because we just cannot project ourselves into his society. And the truth of the matter is that uh, Hirsch himself would have been uh, shocked beyond recognition by the events of Germany 50 years after his death. Because Hirsch essentially was a product of his century, of the 19th century, and he shared many of the general viewpoints of the then intellectual German cultural society. And we see that reflected in his writings and in his attitude, and that, more than anything else, really contributed to his success, and because no one could say he was an anachronism. No one could say that Hirsch was not a man of his time. No one could say that uh, Hirsch was old-fashioned, and his uh, strength at being able to uh, revitalize orthodoxy in Germany, and as uh, being the beacon of Orthodoxy in Western Europe at a time when the assimilation of Western European Jewry was enormous uh, lay in the genius that Hirsch had of being a man of his time and of speaking in the idiom of his time and being able, therefore, to uh, build a foundation uh, that many saw as relevant and as meaningful, as attractive, something that, that had something to say to them. The fact that uh, all of this was swept away uh, in no way minimizes Hirsch's accomplishments, just as Eastern Europe was swept away as well. Now, Hirsch himself was born in Hamburg in 1808, and he was born into a merchant family, into a mercantile family. In fact, Hirsch's uh, grand, uh, Hirsch's parents were disappointed that he did not pursue a career in merchandising and, and opening a store in the retail where uh, many uh, 
sections of Jewry who feel that somehow anybody that goes into the, the Jewish field in whatever fashion, uh, it's an admission of failure. It cannot be anything else, so he becomes a rabbi. He can't make it, uh, so then he becomes a teacher. A, uh, it's a very uh, paradoxical attitude, but it's, uh, it is not absent today in American Jewry, not by a long shot. And uh, parents uh, would much prefer to see their Jewish uh, boys and even girls uh, be doctors and lawyers and accountants and uh, stock leverage buyouters. Than, uh, than be reduced to having to uh, serve the Jewish people in any sort of official uh, capacity. Be that as it may, uh, Hirsch uh, grew up in what was probably the most reformed town in Germany. The first reformed temple in Germany was erected in Hamburg. And Hamburg was became uh, later Berlin overtook it, but Hamburg became the seat of reform. Uh, all the major innovations in the 1820s and 1830s occurred in Hamburg. Uh, the substitution of Sunday for Saturday, uh, the introduction of the organ in the uh, temple, all of the major outward trappings of reform that have become so institutionalized that if one could use the word that they are traditional in reform, all of them uh, occurred uh, in Hamburg. And uh, in the, uh, while Hirsch was growing up as a very young child, in the early 1800s after the Napoleonic Wars, and as Germany became stronger and took a greater role in Europe, the uh, pressure for reform increased. The pressure for reform was based on three different uh, premises. Number one, the premise was that orthodoxy must, by definition, so to speak, cease to exist. That in a modern new society such as 19th century Europe, they're just, one could not be orthodox and be part of the society. And orthodoxy itself did a great deal to confirm that uh, dire view of orthodoxy because the orthodox Jew, or the orthodox Jews who were then uh, present in Western European Jewry were mainly people that uh, were anachronism. Uh, they were not in tune with the society. They had nothing to say to the society, and society had nothing to say to them. There are enormous exceptions, and we're going to speak about two of the exceptions who were the Rabbeim, the main teachers of Hirsch. But generally speaking, even the Orthodox did not believe that they could survive as Orthodox in Western European society. Uh, a man like Marcus, who wrote uh, his famous book on Hasidus, uh, traveled east to Poland and lived in Poland, and he was of the opinion that only in Poland and in Eastern Europe could Jews remain as Orthodox Jews, but that Orthodox Jewry as such was doomed in Western Europe. So that was one premise. One premise is that Orthodoxy in Western Europe was doomed to die. The second premise was that there was a solution to anti-Semitism. 
and that the solution to Western anti-Semitism, in the West at least, lay in the acculturation of the Jew. The reason that the Jews were treated so shabbily and persecuted and suffered bigotry was because of the fact that the Jews separated themselves from society. The Jews were not nice to the non-Jews. The Jews were an exclusive people. The Jews uh, dressed differently, looked differently, observed differently, and that all of that erected a barrier which engendered and encouraged this anti-Semitic viewpoint of the Jew. But if the Jew would only be a nice guy, then somehow anti-Semitism would disappear. Now, uh, there is a school in psychology which always sees the victim as the aggressor and sees the victim as being the guilty person involved. And uh, you have that today, for instance, in most uh, good uh, defense criminal lawyers, if they have a rape or an assault case to defend, the defense is that the woman provoked it even though the poor woman's the victim. Uh, there is a deep-bedded psychological truism within us that the victim deserves it. And this uh, expression of uh, this uh, dark and perverted secret uh, found itself in uh, Western European Jewry who thought that anti-Semitism was their fault and that it was curable by the Jews. And how is it curable? What should the Jews do about it? Well, they should be nicer. Uh, they should accommodate themselves to the non-Jewish world. Uh, they should uh, do all the things that the non-Jewish world wants of them. And that, therefore, anti-Semitism would disappear. The third leg on which uh, this uh, view of uh, Western European Jewry was built was the fact that liberal uh, humanism, secularism, uh, was improving the world. The world was getting better and better and better. And that the world would continue to get better. 19th century man was convinced that war was a thing of the past. Uh, that hunger, that disease, that all the scourges of mankind, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, uh, that was all in ancient history or in medieval history, but that now uh, a new world could be created. These uh, ideas were fostered by the American Revolution and by the French Revolution, both of which set out to build that new world. France was never able to do so, and the United States was able to do so in an imperfect fashion, but as no other country in the world has ever been able to do so. But the United States was able to do so simply because of the enormous prosperity of having a raw continent and having no history, and uh, somehow, and God was on its side also. If we would have to found the American Republic today, 200 years later, uh, we would not have the success. We could not kill out all the Indians, and we couldn't uh, do everything that was done in order to make America the success that it was. That 19th century man believed the world was getting better and better. 
And therefore Jews said, as long as the world was a bad place to live in, as long as the world had dark demons, as long as the world was repressive and warlike, so then you needed Judaism. Then you needed organized religion. But now that the world is so much better, and it's going to continue to be better, and now that the world itself is able to save itself, it need not appeal to any supernatural aid. You don't need God. You don't even need God to help you when you can't help yourself which is what we believe today, too, unfortunately. It's only when the doctor, God forbid, tells you, you know, it's in the hands of God, then you know you're in trouble. Until then he says, yeah, I can do it, you know. It's $6,000, but I can fix it. So as long as he keeps on talking that way, so you're healthy, right? It can be done. But when he starts to talk about God, so then that's a uh, disheartening sign not to encourage it. I heard today that the, uh, the Los Angeles Lakers, who are down three games to none in the playoffs, today had a prayer meeting. Well, when you're three games down to nothing and you're playing the Pistons, right, so then prayer is in order. But if uh, I didn't hear that the Pistons had a prayer meeting, right, because they got it in shape, they're taking care of it. And this philosophy... This philosophy of life is so permeated 19th century thinking that Jews automatically became reformed without giving it a second thought because of the fact that reform stood for all of the benefit of this new modern world that was coming. There was no reason to remain Jewish. And in fact, uh, many reformed Jews converted to Christianity again not out of belief, but out of unity. They said, what's the difference? Heinrich Heine, when he converted, said that baptism is the ticket to Western civilization. And since Western civilization had all of the cures and all of the answers, so it's worth the ticket. No one saw the Dreyfus trial, which would take place only five years after the death of Hirsch. And certainly no one saw what was 50 years down the pipe. No one saw that after the 19th century would come the horrendous 20th century. And that after uh, the, uh, the minor episodes of the Crusades and the Inquisition uh, was coming the Holocaust and Stalin and for the world generally, genocide became a real world, a real word in the 20th century. Whether it be the Armenians, and the Jews, uh, the Cambodians, the Chinese, it's all real. And on a mass scale that never was imagined before. Now, Hirsch uh, studied with his father. He uh, was a uh, very precocious child in terms of diligence. Uh, not necessarily in terms of genius, but in terms of diligence. And he uh, excelled in his studies. Uh, he excelled and he also received a good secular education, a basic secular education. And his parents were uh, 
very, very anxious for him, as I mentioned before, to become a merchant. Uh, but he fell under the influence of one of the uh, most fascinating people in Germany at that time, uh, the Chacham Isaac Bernays, whom we have a member, Mr. Bernays, is a direct descendant. And that this uh, Isaac Bernays was a uh, remarkable person, clever, genius in halacha, a man of inspiration, a man of charisma. And this young child, because her studied under him when he was uh, just barely bar mitzvah, uh, was deeply affected by him. Bernays not only taught him Talmud, Bernays gave him the inspiration uh, that he would be, as he saw himself, he would be the savior of German Jewry from reform. That is how he saw him. That's how he envisioned himself. He envisioned himself as having a mission, a role, and that everything that he did in life was preparatory for the execution of that mission. And even at the earliest ages that we have records of him and, and uh, discussions with his family, etc., uh, he uh, always impressed upon those people whom he spoke with the fact that he was set aside. He was, uh, as one of his uh, phrases was, he was a chosen person amongst the chosen people. And in being that chosen person, he was not going to waste the opportunity. Being a merchant to him was a waste of the opportunity. In 1823, when he was 15 years old, he went to the city of Mannheim, where he stayed for the next six years, and he studied under the man that was his uh, Rabo Muvok, his uh, famous and main teacher, and that was Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger, who is well known to us as the author of the famous Talmudic work Oruch Laner. Rabbi Etlinger was one of the great Talmudic scholars of his time and other times, and he is the one that impressed upon Hirsch uh, the knowledge of Judaism in all of its aspects. He taught him not only Talmud, I don't mean not only, but he taught him Talmud, but he also taught him Hirsch was a, had a great love of language, as we'll see later. He was a philologist. He loved language, and he especially loved the Hebrew language. And uh, both the Chacham Bernays and Rabbi Yaakov Etlinger encouraged his study of uh, Tanakh, of the Nevi'im, of the understanding of the laws of Digduk and of Hebrew. Hirsch was widely read in philosophy, in the philosophy of Judaism. Uh, he uh, had a command in the understanding of uh, the philosophic ideas of uh, the Rambam and of the Ramban. And he was rooted in the uh, in a deep and abiding faith in the words of Chazal. Uh, in 1829, when he was 21 years old, he received his smicha from the Orach Laner, from Yaakov Etlinger, and he left and attended the University of Bonn. Today is the Bonn today is the capital of West Germany. It was always a university town. Uh, at that time, in the 1820s, uh, one of the great and uh, strongest magnets to reform and assimilation 
was the fact that Jews for the first time were allowed in schools of higher learning in Germany. And even though sometimes they were subject to a uh, quota system, basically speaking, Jews in Germany in the 1820s and 1830s could attend university. And they could attend good universities and they could excel in their given profession. Uh, this, more than anything else, was the impetus to reform. Because Jews always saw education as the way out of their problem as the way up the social ladder, and Jews just flocked to the universities in Germany. Hirsch himself uh, was one of the few Orthodox Jews who attended university at that time. And in fact, his classmate at the University of Amman at the same time was a man called Abraham Geiger, who would later become the head of the reform movement in Germany and one of the most radical and extreme reformers. Uh, Geiger was much more in the mold of the German Jewish university student than was Hirsch. And Hirsch underwent strong privations attending university in terms of Shabbos, in terms of Kashrus, in terms of, of everyday life. But Hirsch by now had developed a tremendous uh, self-confidence. When one reads any of Rabbi Hirsch's writings, the thing that comes through immediately is that you're speaking to someone who is not suffering from insecurity, who has no doubts about himself and his mission and his role, who is not frightened of ideas or debates or of any uh, human intercourse, and who is confident that he represents what is right and what is correct and what is holy and what is noble and what is eternal. It's interesting that the name, one of the names of his books was Eternal Judaism. He always saw himself in the, in the time frame of eternity. So even when he was a young man in college, so one would expect under such circumstances that he would be very cowed and reticent and uh, reclusive and perhaps browbeaten and look to uh, not make waves. Instead, he was well-remembered by everyone, by his professors and by the other students. And he was a uh, person of great strength and great nobility and who had the confidence and the strength in himself to be able to uh, pursue it uh, as he wished. Now, when Hirsch was uh, 24 years old, he took his first rabbinic position. Now that also, uh, in that time, uh, was not as, in, as unusual as it may sound today. Even in Eastern Europe, many great rabbis were already at their first rabbinic position in their early 20s, uh, simply because of economic necessity, and that's the way the world was set up. Hirsch married, he did not come into a great dowry, and he uh, was uh, interested, I think that's the right word, he, uh, he was very fascinated by a public career, and he looked to find a position. So he became the Landsrabiner of the German area of Oldenburg, which was a uh, small town, but it gave Hirsch a chance to write and to study and to teach himself how to become a rabbi. 
and his uh, rabbinic uh, his rabbinic talents lay more in the pen than they did in his ability to speak. Though he was a, a good speaker, not not the orator that some others were, but he was a good speaker. But his personal commitment and personal strength, which were commit which were communicated to his community and to individuals in the community, as well as his writings, which were most impressive, uh, combined to make him the formidable person that he was. In 1841, he already assumed a much larger position. He became the chief rabbi of Hanover. And there, uh, in the 1830s and early 1840s, began a flow from his pen of books on the subject of Judaism. Now, it, it, in our time when we have uh, television and we have other types of media, books are important, but they are not as important as they once were. Because, uh, first of all, the holiness of the printed page no longer exists. But there was a time, especially amongst Jews, that anything that was printed was holy, even if it was uh, even if it was the the racing form or a newspaper or uh, any piece of garbage. But the fact that it was printed itself lent a an aura of holiness to the page. And the struggle in the 19th century in Germany between orthodoxy and reform would be a struggle of polemics of essays, of articles, of books, but basically of ideas. And it's interesting to note that even though reform won in terms of numbers and adherence, uh, fully 90% uh, of German Jewry was reformed, and this was even after Hirsch's successes. Uh, nevertheless, in terms of ideas, uh, Hirsch's writings overwhelmed his foes, uh, to the extent that uh, in later generations, uh, reform devoted a great deal of its time and effort merely in trying to refute Hirsch or defend themselves against it. What he did is he turned the tables. Uh, he took orthodoxy away from the defensive and he put it on the offensive. He made it as though uh, uh, he conveyed the idea that he, her orthodoxy was right and reform was wrong something that for the first 60, 70 years of the struggle in Germany, no one had been able to do. His first major book was called The Nineteen Letters of Ben Uziel. Ben Uziel was a pseudonym, a pen name that Hirsch called himself. And these were letters uh, written to a uh, mythical uh, college student who had his doubts about Judaism and his doubts about God and his doubts about religion. And in these uh, mythical letters, these 19 letters, Hirsch spelled out the ideas of Torah. He spelled out the ideas of traditional Judaism. And he also spelled out the fact that nothing in modern life that was good, I emphasize that, nothing in modern life that was good was incompatible with Torah life. It's interesting that Hirsch, for instance, in, in Eastern Europe, uh, the defense against Haskola, uh, against modernism, was a broadside against modernism. 
everything in modernism was trace. It was all no good. It had no redeeming social value. It was destruction at its worst. And uh, that reaction, uh, only history can judge whether that was the correct reaction, whether that was the way to fight it or not. But that wasn't Hirsch's method. Hirsch's method was to uh, extract what was the most positive elements of modern society, of 19th century Europe, and to show how they were compatible with Torah life, and in fact how Torah life uh, was the author of it, how it was really derived from the Torah itself, and therefore uh, uh, was valid. That was really the the uh, beginning of his philosophy of Torah in Derech Eretz, which meant that Torah was compatible with modern society, compatible with the way of the world, and that Torah had a great deal to say to the modern world. The 19 Letters of ben was a brilliant intellectual presentation of Orthodox Judaism, and it was written in classical German. Uh, Hirsch had a marvelous pen. Uh, German is a difficult language, as anybody here knows who knows German. And uh, to the non-German, it's almost an impossible language. Hirsch has been translated into English, into Hebrew, into many other languages, but it never comes across the same. Hirsch's uh, prose in German was gifted. His prose in all other languages, even in Hebrew, is uh, more stilted. It's just very difficult. It's very difficult to translate. The old uh, joke of Mark Twain, that he and his friend once went to a German lecture, a lecture in German, and after a half hour, his friend got up to leave, and Twain said to him, aren't you going to wait for the verb? The, uh, the necessity of, uh, of uh, being able to read Hirsch in German to truly appreciate it is important, but in today's world, it's waned almost completely. So w- today, we know Hirsch from English. In Israel, they know Hirsch from Hebrew. Uh, it's the same Hirsch, but it's not the same Hirsch. And his, uh, his presentation was a fearless, uncompromising defense of Orthodox Judaism in all of its institutions and ordinances. He did not hide. He did not apologize. He did not say, uh, well, it's a nice custom and we're going to keep it. He uh, advanced the ideas of Orthodoxy in a very, very strong, firm basis one that brooked no compromise, one that brooked no uh, adjustments. And he said, this is the most valid way to live in 1840 Germany. And not because of the fact that our forefathers lived that way in 1640 Germany, but because in 1840 Germany, this is the way to live. And that was a, uh, even though to us that sounds simplistic, but it was a new idea. None of the Orthodox defenders of Judaism had ever quite stated it in that fashion, had ever quite uh, taken on such a strong stand. In 1838, he had published his work, Chorev, which really was a textbook on Judaism, again in German, uh, for educated Jewish youth, but who were not educated in Judaism people who knew uh, culture and the uh, classics of the civilization, 
but who knew very little about Judaism and who knew very little about Jewish ideas. And Chorev was a book that was meant to speak to them. Again, you have a radical departure of writing for basically a non-religious audience uh, that would not come about in Eastern Europe until much, much later. And it never came about with the success uh, that Hirsch was able to do it in Germany. He was an enormously gifted polemicist, and his polemics against reform were cutting. Hirsch had a good sense of humor. He had a sense of irony. He had a sense of ridicule. Uh, he picked them apart, and he made fun of them, and he enraged them. He enraged them. They, he was very unpopular in Germany, and he was unpopular, as we will see, not only among the reform, but he was not necessarily very popular among all segments of orthodoxy either. Uh, he, uh, his movement was called neo-orthodoxy, meaning new orthodoxy, but that's a misnomer. There was nothing new in his orthodoxy. The only thing that was new was that he was a college graduate, uh, fluent in German, who dressed in the classic dress of the 19th century scholars, and uh, who, to uh, all respects, was a good citizen of Germany, and who did not uh, move one iota from the law of Moses, and who did not compromise his beliefs and who claimed very clearly that one could, so to speak, have both worlds. One could be a modern German and yet be a traditional Jew in the fullest sense of the word. It's interesting to note that Hirsch, to a certain extent, was the realization of, uh, of what Mendelssohn could have been, except Mendelssohn gave up on the idea. Hirsch wrote a translation of the Bible into German, and an excellent translation. Hirsch wrote commentaries in German. Uh, Hirsch uh, fully participated in all of German life. Uh, but whereas Mendelssohn felt that all of this could be done only if one somehow compromised one's Judaism, or at least put it on, its ba on the back burner, uh, I, I've mentioned a number of times that there's a famous phrase that the Haskola in Eastern Europe use, Yehi Yehudi Bevesecha Veodom Betseisecha, that you should be a Jew at home in your tents, but when you go out in the street, you should be a man of the world. Now, even though Mendelssohn didn't say it, Mendelssohn was the father of that idea, that Judaism was to be relegated to the home, it was to be a, a private matter, but that in all other respects, one was to be a public figure, a public German. Now, Hirsch did not agree with that. Hirsch was a Jew inside the house and outside the house. He was a Jew at home and in the marketplace. But he was in the marketplace. He was not relegated to stay at home. And uh, that really is what neo-orthodoxy stood for. The orthodoxy stood for the fact, not a new orthodoxy, but the fact that orthodoxy now stood in a new place. It was not only in the synagogue and not only in the home, but wherever a Jew was. 
and he was able, therefore, to train a cadre of committed Jews in Germany who, uh, who wouldn't miss a mincha, wherever they were, and who uh, observed every letter of the law. In 1846, Hirsch became the rabbi of Nicholsburg in the Duchy of Moravia, which is Czechoslovakia, southern Germany, Czechoslovakia. And there he even served as a member of the legislature, the Moravian legislature. And he had uh, honors given to him by the government. It was a very high position. The truth of the matter is that Hirsch could have stayed there the rest of his life and continued writing and continued uh, his polemicizing, and we would have considered him to be a great and enormous success. It certainly would have been easier for him financially and in all other factors had he stayed in Moravia. But as I told you before, Hirsch was driven by a mission, and the mission was that he was going to build a new, strong orthodoxy in Germany that would be able to defeat or at least uh, stem the tide of reform. And that is what impelled him more than anything else. Therefore, five years later, in 1851, he moved to Frankfurt am Main, which is one of the famous old Jewish communities of Europe. Frankfurt is mentioned yet by the Balei the Jews had been in Frankfurt at least since the year 1000. And there had been many, many great Rabbonim, the great scholars in Frankfurt. The, the Chassam Sofer was born in Frankfurt. The Nosen Adler was in Frankfurt. The Pnei Yeshua was the Rovenant in, uh, in uh, Frankfurt. The, uh, the Baal HaFloe, the Pinchas Horwitz was the Rov in Frankfurt. It had a great tradition, Frankfurt. In the 1840s, Frankfurt became a reformed Jewish community. The reform took over the Kehillah, a, co a community that had 850 years behind it of uh, Orthodox observance, of great Orthodox rabbis. It was the, the flagship of Jewish Germany turned reform. And the reform, uh, the rule in Germany was, as it was in other parts in Europe, is that you had to belong to a kehila. You had to belong to a group. So if you were Lutheran, you belonged to the Lutherans. If you were Catholic, you belonged to the Catholics. If you were Jewish, you had to belong to the Jewish kehila. And the Jewish Gemeinde, the Jewish kehila, collected the taxes from you and sent it to the government. You didn't pay it to the government, you paid it to the kehila. If you wanted to be married or buried or whatever, you had to do it through the kehila. And the kehila was responsible for you. And therefore, here you had a reform kehila. Now, the reform in Germany had a generous policy towards their Orthodox brethren because they were convinced that Orthodoxy was about to die out, a phenomena which uh, has existed for uh, well over a century, that the secular and uh, non-Orthodox always felt that Orthodox were going to die out, and therefore they humored them, which was the situation in Israel until it became apparent to them that the Orthodoxy was not going to die out. And part of the humoring of Orthodoxy was that in matters of kashras and in matters of religious ritual, they let the Orthodox 
have their own department so that they ran the Shita and they ran the Jewish cemetery, the Orthodox section of the Jewish cemetery, etc., etc. But the control of the Kehila lay in the reform. There were a small group of people. Now, this, by the way, was a great dispute within Germany itself. What should the Orthodox response be to this? So, for instance, the great Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Nathan Bomberger, said that the Orthodox should not leave the Reform Kehila, but they should work from within and remain part of the Kehila. We'll see that Hirsch's response was Austrit Gemeinde, that they should leave the Kehila and form their own Kehilas. We had the same type of dispute that existed in Hungary regarding the Kehilas. And to a certain extent, if you'll extrapolate it, it's been the dispute regarding uh, Zionism, uh, regarding all other things, whether or not there is room for, is it better to cooperate and stay with the non-religious and attempt to have an influence from within, or is it better to leave, separate oneself, and to have a uh, true and more pristine kehila on one's own terms and forget about the rest. So in 1851, Hirsch came to his kehila in Frankfurt, which consisted of 11 families. He left being the chief rabbi of Moravia and a member of the Moravian parliament to be the kehila of 11 families. It's interesting that he came to 11. Uh, I always uh, tell the story about the man that, uh, about the community that had 10 Jews. So when they had only 10 Jews, so they had a minion every day of the year. And nobody ever went on vacation, nobody ever left. They knew that they had to stick it out, 10 Jews. Well, one day, an 11th Jew moved into town, and the next morning they didn't have a minion. Uh, the uh, the 11 families, though, that he had were fiercely loyal. And in the period of time from 1851 until his death in 1888, the Kehila grew to, to close to 600 families. And it grew into a very powerful Kehila, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of influence, it was far more powerful than the numbers uh, alone. Uh, this Kehillah, uh, Hirsch organized not only a uh, synagogue, he also organized education. He built what was called a Realschule. Realschule, it's comparable to what our day school would look like. But it was, again, it's 1860 uh, Germany. It's not, not, not our situation. But the... Uh, the uh, the description would be that the school taught uh, Jewish studies for a considerable amount of the day and secular studies for the rest of the day. And the secular studies were done completely in German and to the highest uh, form of, uh, of Germanic uh, efficiency. And the Realschule in Frankfurt became the prototype of other such schools. Uh, it's interesting that Hirsch's attempt and success in this matter uh, was not met with criticism as it would have been had he tried the same thing in Eastern Europe, because the Eastern European rabbi said that Hirsch's experiment was successful. 
The only thing they said is that he should keep it in Germany. He should not export it east. And that has remained the attitude uh, to a great extent. Uh, Eastern European, the Eastern European rabbinate never saw Hirsch as their prototype. And they never saw that type of kehila as being realizable in their communities. Hirsch's famous works uh, are his uh, translation and commentary to the Psalms, the Tehillim, his translation and commentary to the Chumash, and published posthumously was his translation and commentary to the Siddur. Uh, in all of the commentaries, Hirsch uh, shows himself as an enormous uh, linguist, uh, someone who understands language. He uses uh, the Hebrew language uh, uh, to express, uh, he uses the forms that are used in the description of words in the Hebrew language in the Bible as the means to express great philosophic and deep ideas. However, as I told you, he is a product of his time, and he has certain references in there which, when one reads them a hundred years later, are slightly hollow. Uh, his description of Esau as uh, improving, as becoming better, and his description of the of Yaakov and Esau, and Yaakov says to Esau, Adasher ovo el Adoni seira, till I will come to you, we'll meet again at the end of time. So he, he waxes uh, rhapsodic about how uh, the non-Jewish world is becoming, civilization is becoming better and better and better, and that uh, the time of the Renaissance of Jacob and Esau is not far, etc. Well, you know, post-Auschwitz, it doesn't sound so good especially if you read it in German. But uh, he's not to be faulted for that. But, that. but that was the reflection of the time, the reflection of the society that he lived in. His uh, parish to Chumash has become a standard. It has become a standard. Uh, the ideas that he expresses are uh, so noble and so lofty, and they are so telling and true uh, that... Uh, that, that it became uh, accepted by all within uh, traditional Judaism. It remains till today uh, one of his uh, basic works. Uh, he's, uh, his strength and his kehila was such that he was finally able uh, in, the, in 1871 to have his kehila uh, excluded from the general German Kehillah in Frankfurt am Main, and his realization of an Austrit Gemeinde, of an independent Jewish community outside of the general Jewish community, was realized. And uh, Hirsch, uh, in the, the, the Hirschian community in Frankfurt, was not part of the general Jewish community from that time onward. And it had all of the services of a kihile on its own. Its own cemetery, its own burial, its own synagogue, its own schools, its own dayonim, its own meat, its own butcher, its own everything. And to a certain extent, you'll see that that has been retained in the structure, at least, of the uh, Frankfurt kihile that uh, emigrated to the United States in Washington Heights in New York and still remains today a strong and vital kihile. But the structure, the infrastructure of the Kehillah 
uh, is that of the Kehillah that existed in Frankfurt. And it's also a uh, uh, part of the psychology was not to be dependent upon anyone else, to be completely self-supporting, self-sufficient. Uh, it's an independent empire. Even everything works on its own. And that was uh, Hirsch's greatness, that he was able to do that. Also, his greatness was that he was able to communicate it in his own family to his son-in-law, Isaac Breuer, and to his grandson, Joseph Breuer, who, is, who uh, moved the Kehillah here to the United States, and who were people of iron, enormously strong people who, again, uh, uh, who were uh, well-versed in Schiller and Goethe and were unbending in their principles, unbending. Uh, so much so that it is told that if somebody came with an umbrella to the shul in Frankfurt, on Yontiv, he was refused entrance because you weren't allowed to open an umbrella on Yontiv. And, and that was it. Those were the rules. And the rules were strictly enforced. But a cadre of people, hundreds and later thousands of people, were created who were physicians, uh, who were lawyers, who were uh, merchants, who were immersed in every way in general German life, who were uh, rigorously, strictly orthodox in every sense of the word. Uh, they also, uh, in the, during the First World War, for instance, served in the German army with distinction. They saw themselves as members of the fatherland, of being German. But they were Jews, uh, where the Reformed Jews said that they were Germans of the Mosaic persuasion. The uh, Orthodox Jews, Hirsch's Jews, saw themselves as Jews who were Germans. Uh, the nuance is very important. And uh, to a certain extent, the, uh, it was caused by the fact that uh, Hirsch, during his lifetime, already saw the destruction of reform. Reform already was on, not just on the downswing, but anybody that viewed reform saw the debacle that was coming. Reform then was running not just an intermarriage rate, it was running a conversion rate of almost 35%. And uh, it became clear uh, that the reform as a viable form of Judaism uh, really had no place. In fact, reform in Germany advertised that it was there only to preside over the last generations of Jews. The uh, famous Wissenschaft das Judentum, the scientific institute for the study of Judaism, which Zuntz and Geiger and others uh, supported and uh, sponsored, uh, was there to do research into all the great old things in Judaism because they were all going to disappear. Since no one was going to study Rashi, so they had to write Rashi's biography now because in a hundred years nobody would know about Rashi. So they set aside, they set out to preserve for posterity so it would at least be in the library or the museum what Judaism was. It's ironic that uh, Hitler followed up on that idea. Hitler also wanted to have a museum because he said that there would be no more Jews in the world 
So therefore, there would be a museum of Jews, of Jewish things, so the world could see what, what, what Jews once were. It's very ironic that uh, God listened in that such a fashion. But uh, Hirsch's idea was that uh, there would be Jews 100 years from now, and that there was nothing wrong in the scientific inquiry into Judaism. But that was not the substitute for producing Jews. The only way to produce Jews was in a kehila, was in a real shula, was in schools, was in Torah education, etc. And that really was the uh, great contribution that Hirsch made to his time and to later times. During his time, he was his, even though he was universally respected, uh, many disagreed with his ideas. As I mentioned before, not only... Uh, uh, the Reform disagreed with his ideas, but many Orthodox also disagreed with his ideas. And they disagreed with his policies and his tactics, but no one could disagree with his success. J.M. and the A.M., it's our by Beryl Wine. Uh, the series is entitled The Challenge of Secularism. This lecture, Harav Shamshan Raphael Hirsch. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Galay Tzal in the background. Galay Tzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Tuesday follows next. We say Boker Tov from JM in the AM. Galay Tzal, Mirushalayim, Asha Ashtayim, Shalom Rav, Kan Rani Avnai, Ima Shekurei Akshav. המתיחות בגבול לבנון, ראש הממשלה נתניהו ביקר הבוקר בפיקוד הצפון וקיים הערכת מצב ביטחונית עם הרמטכ״ל רב אלוף אביב כוכבי, מפקד פיקוד הצפון, ושורה של בכירים נוספים ושמע סקירות מצב קוניות. בסיום הביקור אמר ראש הממשלה, צהל ערוך לכל תרחיש. אנחנו ממשיכים לפעול כדי לסכל את ההתבססות הצבאית איראנית באזורנו. אנחנו נעשה כל מה שצריך כדי להגן על עצמנו, ואני מציע לחיזבאללה לקחת בחשבון את העובדה הפשוטה הזאת, ישראל ערוכה לכל תרחיש. מדבריו של ראש הממשלה נתניהו, הפיע כתבתנו מוריה אסרף גולדברג. בלחץ המפלגות החרדיות, יושב ראש הקואליציה מיקי זוהר הודיע כי הממשלה תסכים להרחבת תוכנית המענקים ולמתן תוספת גם עבור הילד הרביעי ויותר. סגן השר אורי מקלב מיהדות התורה אמר לאמיר איבגי בגלי צה"ל כל ילד צריך לקבל את המענק. הילדים האלה הם אזרחי מדינת ישראל. נותנים היום מענקים לכלל אזרחי מדינת ישראל. אני מתבייש בזה. שלכתחילה מביאים הצעה ולוקחים אה, ילדים ומחלקים אותם. אף אחד עד היום לא נימק את ההיגיון סביב לכך שילד, בסופו של דבר, גם אחרי ההצעה הזו, הוא יקבל מענק הרבה הרבה יותר נמוכה. כתבנו לענייני כלכלה ניתאי ענבי מציין שבממשלה מעריכים שתוספת המענקים עומדת על 150 מיליוני שקלים. יושב ראש ישראל ביתנו ליברמן תקף בחריפות ביומן הצהריים את שר הביטחון גנץ ברקע המשבר בקואליציה סביב תקציב המדינה. בני גנץ זה כמו טרגדיה יוונית. אשתו לא מבין לאן הוא נפל. סך הכל באמת שר בעלי חיים. אני אראה אותו וחוץ מרחמנות אין לי שום תחושה אחרת. בכנסת דודי אמסלם משתלח בשר המשפטים. זה טירוף מוחלט, זה ממשלה שאיבדה את השליטה. ברקע העלייה בתחלואה במזרח העיר ירושלים, משרד הבריאות מנחה את קופות החולים לבצע סקר תחלואה נרחב במזרח ירושלים, כולל דיגום של חולים ללא תסמינים. בחמש הימים האחרונים מספר החולים המאומתים במזרח העיר גדל מ-1,700 ל-2,000. 
את הפרטים הביאו כתבנו יובל שגב ומאיר מרציאנו. לקראת חג הקורבן, כ-90 מיליון שקלים יועברו לרשויות המקומיות הערביות והדרוזיות. עם הפרטים כתבנו דורון קדוש. שר הפנים דרעי החליט להקדים את מענקי האיזון לרשויות הערביות והדרוזיות המוחלשות לקראת חג הקורבן שיחל ביום חמישי הקרוב, זאת ברקע התפשטות הקורונה ביישובים ערביים רבים, וכדי לאפשר לרשויות להתמודד עם המצוקה הכלכלית שאליה נקלעו בעקבות המשבר. הסכום הכולל עומד על כ-90 מיליון שקלים, והוא יחולק ל-84 רשויות מקומיות. ומזג האוויר גם מחר, עומסי חום קיצוניים. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד. For having survived the war. Born in 1940, watched by his non-Jewish nanny for, I guess, five years before his parents came to uh, to get him back. Uh, I thought it was, he has an initiative that uh, he's chairing now with the Met Council on Jewish Poverty to help uh, Holocaust survivors around the country, I think even around the world. Um, and we'll discuss that, obviously, but I thought Erev Tishabov when so many of us are focused on the tragedies of our history, especially in addition to the uh, destruction of the temples, uh, the Holocaust, since it's one of the mo- more recent uh, national tragedies that we've suffered. Uh, I thought it would be a good day to ha- have him on, talk about the perspective of history. Uh, so Erev Tishabov tomorrow, Abe Foxman, <coughs> the executive director uh, emeritus of the uh, Anti-Defamation League, will join us here at JM in the AM. And it should be a fascinating conversation. So that's coming up tomorrow here at JMNAM. A reminder, Yom NCSY is Sunday. We're actually going to be broadcasting from from close to where Yom NCSY is going to be taking place, <laughs> out on Long Island. Um, we're going to be broadcasting Monday's show from there, meaning a, uh, a pre-record like we normally do with Yom NCSY. Uh, Mordechai Shapiro and Benny Friedman are together at eight o'clock Eastern time this coming Sunday night in a in a um, a program that's not only a great concert. Obviously, with these two, it's going to be a great concert, uh, but it's also a program uh, that is such an amazing NCSY event, and you get to be part of it the same way the NCSY is going to be enjoying it this year, and that is virtually. So get ready for uh, Yom NCSY this coming Sunday for details to purchase your ticket, etc. Summer.ncsy.org slash YomNCSY. Summer.ncsy.org slash NCSY. Check it out and enjoy. Rabbi Marty Katz, who is executive uh, vice president of the uh, Just One Life organization, has been with us many times before. Uh, He's with us live via telephone. We're going to take a minute and remind everybody about tonight's event. Tonight, there's an event happening in Bergenfield, New Jersey. It will be live streamed. Uh, it is featuring Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson. It's benefiting the amazing work of Just One Life. Starts at 8.30 p.m. tonight from the home of the Mandel family in uh, Bergenfield, New Jersey. Rabbi Marty Katz, welcome back to JM in the AM. It is always a pleasure, Nachum, to be on your show and to be with you. I, appre- I, appre- I appreciate that. We're going to talk about tonight's event and how people can access it. First, remind everybody about the important work of Just One Life. 
Just One Life empowers mothers in Israel to continue their pregnancies and have children they desire. We give services, supportive counseling, stipends, advocacy. It's any issue that deals with pregnancy, whether God forbid a family is considering the possibility of terminating, whether it's miscarriage, whether it's depression, any issue dealing with terminating, any issue dealing with pregnancy, pregnancy in crisis, referrals come to our office in Yerushalayim via social workers, doctors, professionals, psychologists, and thank God we've saved Reb Nachum over 18 and a half thousand babies. How many, uh, tonight, what, what year did it start? What year did the organization begin? Uh, 1988, but wow. it's really kicked off in 1990. We're a little over 30 years. Pretty amazing. Tonight, what's happening tonight, and how can our listeners take advantage of it? Uh, okay. So first of all, everybody's familiar here in Tina to Jack and Carol Forgish. They are the founders with the Forgish family. Tonight, 8.30, it's live streamed. If you first of all simply just go to the website, www.justonelife.org, very easy to remember. There's a pop-up of YY. Click on it. You could register. The registration is very simple. You could do it anytime during the day. It's your name, your email address, and optional to have your cell, your cell number or phone number. And then you register and at 8.30, tune in, 8.20, tune in. It's a very brief program before YY Speaks, and we've done this before. It's hosted. The chair people are the Mandels and the Liebermans, a major committee from Teaneck Bergenfield, and it's hosted right out live stream from River Ozzy. YY will be speaking, just he will be speaking from Ozzy and Rachel's home. We invite you to be part of our mission to help us save more nefashos, more babies, uh, and uh, in- enjoy. So we'll essentially, enjoy. so essentially, it's a great event in support of Just One Life, and everyone who tunes in gets to hear an amazing speaker. Correct. It's the fifth year we've been doing this, and hundreds of babies have been saved. Actually, it started with the the, Man, the Mandels. They are terrific, and uh, Rania Ish and Stu Forges helped us launch. This particular event in Teaneck Bergenfield five years ago. Just One Life tonight has a live stream event. As you hear from Rabbi Katz, it's a tradition. This is not a uh, an innovation because of this year. It's a tradition to do this during the summer uh, each and every year. Uh, it's tonight. starts at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, the live stream will be happening from the home of Rachel and Ozzie Mandel in Bergenfield, New Jersey, co-hosted by the Mandels and the Liebermans. And uh, Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson, the internationally renowned speaker, is going to be the special guest speaker. Information about all of this uh, in terms of uh, registering for the uh, live stream and being part of it tonight, go to the uh, Just One Life website. Again, go to to, uh, the uh, Just One Life website, and uh, uh, you'll be able there to get all the information uh, about the event. JustOneLife.org. Just one life. That orger by cats. I hope tonight is a very, very successful event. Thank you. God bless you, and for all you do for us and to call Israel. You only have the koach. That's the bracha to keep doing. I may be some shana. Amen. Thank you very much for that. And an easy fast, right, Marty Katz? He leads Just One Life. Tonight's the event from the Mandel home in um, Bergenfield, New Jersey. Rabbi Y Y Jacobson. If you've never heard him. He's a good one. <laughs> He's a good speaker. <laughs> Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson said, I go to the website, register for the event, support Just One Life, get involved in yet another amazing Jewish cause. So many amazing, great Jewish causes out there, I must say. Uh, justonelife.org, justonelife.org. 
JM in the AM Tuesday with 82 degrees, mostly sunny, a high of 95. We can't get out of the 90s. I see that once Tishabov ends, we'll finally be out of the 90s. Until then, we remain in the 90s. Cloudy tonight, low 76, and tomorrow, sunshine, a high temperature, 93 degrees. We're at 90 right now in Yushalayim. 82 here in New York City, JM in the AM. Oh, by the way, Rabbi Wine's lectures, information 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Also remember, Artscroll at Artscroll.com has every Rabbi Wine title at 15% off and free shipping if you use promo code RADIO. 15% off and free shipping, excuse me, if you use promo code RADIO. Keep that in mind. By the way, just just the other day, I was asking Miriam Wallach about this, uh, if we had heard any latest news regarding the group flights from uh, Nefesh Benefesh. And then I get this this um, press release this morning. Throughout the summer, Nefesh Benefesh will be facilitating a total of 16 group Aliyah flights. I think when we first announced it, it was 12, wasn't it? It was 1, 4, and 9. 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 4. It was 14. Now it's 16 with designated blocks of seats reserved for its Olim on commercial flights to Israel. Two of the flights arriving this week will have 78 future lone soldiers aboard. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Nefesh Benefesh, God bless you. It is amazing what they are doing. This week, 78 lone soldiers just incredible. By the way, I want to give a shout out to the Herzog College you may you and Batanach online. It's happening online. Uh, for the past 25 years, thousands have come to Herzog College and Alon Shavuot to participate in, in Tanakh study days. I know a lot of people who do this, by the way. This year, the entire program is accessible online in Hebrew and English from the convenience of your own home. Um, go to summer.herzog, H-E-R-Z-O-G, summer.herzog.ac. Dot il you'll see everything there the presenters are amazing it's an annual event that's incredible and this year they literally figured out a way i think they i think they said they had over 8000 people signed up for it already <laughs> which tells you the benefit of being virtual i don't think they had 8000 when it was uh, an in person thing in in alonshfood but anyway it goes on until the 28th of july so it finishes today uh, but again you could you could check it out and see all the different things they're offering and how you could possibly, I would assume there's a way of getting some of the information and some of the uh, offerings uh, once the program ends as well. Uh, So you can check it out, summer.herzog.ac.il, summer.herzog.ac.il. I meant to mention that yesterday and uh, just didn't get to it, and I apologize for that. So every year on Tishabov. Every year on Tishabov, uh, and many years I've participated. The, the, the reason I have not participated in a couple of years uh, over the last handful of years that we flew to Israel on Tishabov. In fact, I think, if I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, I think, I think uh, this year also the plan was because we had all the shows scheduled for the first week in August from Israel between NCSY and Nefesh Ben Nefesh, etc. I think the plan was to fly on Tisha B'Av. I think it was just, I was going to spend Shabbos Nachamu in Israel 
And then uh, the plan here, here was the original plan. <laughs> Here's the, here was the original plan. We were going to spend, I was going to spend Shabbos Nachamu in Israel, fly back, um, and, right, and then, and then, and then record the Yom NCSY show Sunday night, then fly back to Kennedy Airport and escort that same day the Nefesh Benefesh flight back from Kennedy to Israel with the with the Tuesday show or the Wednesday show being done from the plane. Uh, and then I was going to stick around for a couple of wedding celebrations that are going on in Israel, which unfortunately now it looks like I'm going to miss, uh, unfortunately. So I think the original plan was also to fly on Tisha B'Av this year with that schedule in mind. Anyway, uh, the times that I've missed it recently is uh, because we've been on a plane on Tisha B'Av. This year, what is it that I'm referring to? I'm referring to the... Um, Mincha prayer service at the Isaiah Peace Wall. Every year for the last 42 years, there's been an annual Tisha B'Av prayer service with Mincha, Talis, Tefillin, Torah uh, for Israel and Jews in danger worldwide. Coordinated by Amcha, the Coalition for Jewish Concerns, Glenn Richter, of course. The amazing Glenn Richter always uh, keeps us up to date on this, leads it, sends out a, a notice afterwards describing what the event was like. Anyway, so this Thursday, July 30th, which is Tisha B'Av, there will be Mincha at 145, and there will be presentations at 215, but it's all happening via Zoom. It's all going to happen via Zoom. The 43rd annual Tisha B'Av prayer service for Israel and Jews in danger worldwide is going to be happening via Zoom. Information, uh, you can contact the Coalition for Jewish Concerns, and um, let's see if I have a phone number here. Um, let's see. Uh, Coalition for Jewish Concerns. And um, that would be an email address. Shuli, S-H-U-L-I. Shuli, S-H-U-L-I at thebayit.org. Shuli at thebayit.org. Anyway, there's a Zoom address. It's just way too long to give out here uh, on the air, but um, maybe Thursday morning we'll make an effort to to do that and get people to write it down and join in for the uh, for the annual Tisha B'Av prayer service. So Kolakavod, we're usually at the Isaiah Wall, or, or as the Nasi of the Mizrahi calls it, Kotel Yeshayahu. Uh, we're normally there, davening Mincha. will not happen this year, but there is a way to Zoom in and at least be together and hear the presentations this year, and that's happening this coming Thursday. Uh, on Tisha B'Av itself. So keep that in mind. We'll certainly remind you as we get closer. J.J. Sussman is with us live via telephone. He's been with us before. He's international director of Gesher. And the Gesher has a, a very special and important uh, campaign going on as we speak. Um, uh, Gesher works to build a cohesive Israeli society that emphasizes and embraces the vibrancy, diversity, and shared heritage of the Jewish people. J.J. Sussman from Israel. Welcome back to JM in the AM. Great to be back with you, Nachum. Great to be here. I, appre- I appreciate that. Many people try to uh, I- to emphasize and spread the uh, the message of embracing the vibrancy, diversity, and shared heritage of the Jewish people. Uh, it's not an easy thing to do. How does Gesher do this successfully? So, so it's a great question. I think the best we can do is really try our hardest and never give up. I mean, just one one example that's happening right now, I'm sure 
I know you and you follow the news in Israel. There have been a lot of uh, protests happening in Israel uh, and with the police getting involved and the like, and sometimes in the heat of the moment acting uh, towards specific sectors of Israeli society in ways that, uh, that we would hope could be better. And uh, the police reached out to us because they want to implement within their ranks uh, sensitivity seminars on how to deal with different sectors of society, whether it's the Haredi sector or, or others. And we're running seminars for them right now through their education department, working with them hand-in-hand to try, even in the heat of protest, to recognize that we're all part of one, one nation and, and we're not fighting enemies in this case, but really allowing for peaceful demonstration, but doing it hopefully more sensitively than it's been done in the past. I know your mission is much is even much bigger than that, which I appreciate, but what you just said is so important. I want to focus on it for a second. A lot of people, and people don't realize this, and, and of course it's like this in the U.S. and other places as well, a lot of people don't realize that members of the Army and members of the police force who are not from, as the example you gave, from a Haredi background or from, you know, they only come from a specific community and can't really understand the mentality of all cultures and all different communities, they simply don't get it. And they reach out to you because they know that if they would just understand the general mentality or approach of a specific community, they really could handle things in a much more peaceful manner and a much more productive manner. And I would assume that that's probably the best byproduct of the sessions that you're referring to. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, just another example like that, we started a new program pairing, uh, in, in this case, uh, Ethiopian female social activists together with Haredi female social activists, because there's so much to learn from one another and so much gets lost in translation. And we call it the Google Translate Seminar. That's what we call it. And, when, and, it, and you know, in this conversation, the, the Ethiopians were insistent on calling themselves uh, from the Yotse Ethiopia. You know, they came out of Ethiopia. They're not Ethiopians. They came out of the Ethiopian right. society. And the Haredim were saying, if we say we're Yotse HaChavra Haredit, we come out of the Haredi community, that means we... You know, we became not from anymore. Right. And it's just such a simple thing, the same exact word, and means such different things. And all we need to do is come together and talk and understand and recognize that there's so much to learn from one another that we can really make the world such a better place. Oh, look, it's all about communication. People don't get that. It's, it, you know, the, the more people you know and the more communication there is between different groups, even groups that are traditionally enemies, it's only beneficial. I'm not saying that one has to give in to the enemy or agree with their politics or anything, but, but the dialogue always is helpful. Simple as that. It may not be as productive as you'd like it to be always, but it's always helpful. J.J. Sussman with us, International Director of Gesher. So Gesher's been doing this work, and you have an amazing track record. I mean, the organization's been around for how long at this point? Actually, 50 years, but what's really I find to be amazing, I've been here now six years, is, is how we've managed to adapt ourselves to every new situation. I, I've been speaking about the Haredi community. That's an area where Gesher was not involved in at all, and only in the last uh, seven or eight years, we've really sunk our teeth into working with uh, Haredim and general Israeli society at the interface uh, wherever they meet uh, one another. And, and also Israel-Bassin relations is another very big issue that's come up over the last few years. And we've been at the fore of, of really making sure we can strengthen that relationship by giving Israelis the knowledge and the understanding that's an important relationship. There's so much ignorance here about what exists outside of Israel that it's so important to, uh, to work with leaders in Israeli society to recognize that the Jewish people doesn't end at Ben-Gurion Airport. Yeah, very and good. And that, that's been our, I think that's been part of our success, our ability to really adapt to, uh, 
to new realities. J.J. Sussman's with us. All right. Tell me about the current Gesher campaign and why it is so important. Well, as you said, I mean, right now the corona crisis, it's another great example of how we've been able to adapt. Our entire business, quote-unquote, revolves around, like we said, meeting one another. And in a world where meeting is a bad thing, face-to-face, we have to learn how to still overcome our differences and learn that we're in this together, uh, even through virtual meetings. And that's something that we've been able to do over these last few months. But everyone's talking about the health crisis and the financial crisis and the leadership crisis, and they're all there, and they're all important and, and true. But if you ask me what's the crisis that nobody's talking about or not enough people are talking about, but it's going to be with us the longest, even once we find the cure for corona or find the vaccine, it's the societal crisis. As we say in Hebrew, the mashpera chevrati. The stereotypes come to the fore exactly in these circumstances, and we're seeing it, unfortunately, again and again. And that's why we are now uh, in the midst of a campaign uh, for another uh, eight hours or so, uh, called Dafka Achshav Mechazkim Gesher. Exactly now, especially now, during this time, is when we need to strengthen those connections and strengthen that bridge. And uh, the website, if anyone's interested to join us, is uh, charity.com. That's charity with a D, dot com, backslash Gesher, G-E-S-H-E-R. And we've gotten great support so far from our friends across the world, in America and England and here in Israel, and, of course, I know especially this time when it's hard for people not to be able to travel to Israel. We, we actually are making a bar mitzvah in November. We have no idea which of our family members are going to be able to make <laughs> it and who won't be able to make it. Yep. But uh, especially in these times when people want to feel that connection, not just to Israel, but to the greater Jewish people, Erev Tishabah, when we know that uh, why, and the only thing that's torn us apart as a nation is our internal strife, it's a great opportunity for people to join the efforts to bring us all together as one. Yeah, that's actually it's the perfect time of year, the perfect week of the year for it, no question about it. Uh, the goal is uh, half a million shekel. It's about $150,000, everybody. There's seven and a half hours left uh, to participate, and we would hope that our audience would um, uh, would in fact participate and help Gesher get to their goal and let them continue this amazing work that they've been doing for so many decades uh, in uniting us and not dividing us and in, in trying to build bridges, Gesher, after all, right, bridge, build bridges. Uh, it, it's the only way. It's the future. It's actually, when you think about it, it's anything that's been successful in the past or present uh, has been for that reason as well. Um, so we uh, encourage everybody, uh, as we always do. We <laughs> It seems we're always telling you about a good cause. Uh, this is another great cause. Charity.com. It's C H A R I. D-Y, charity.com slash Gesher, charity.com slash Gesher. There is an English site and an English summation there that you can click on and read more about the work of Gesher. There's seven and a half hours left on this seventh day of the nine days, right before we get to Erev Tishabov, a perfect time uh, to dedicate funds to an organization and an effort that's all about Jewish unity. That's all about bringing people together. Seven and a half hours to go. Uh, they're at the 246,000 shekel at this point, uh, just about 50% of the goal uh, as they're on their way to a half a million shekel goal, and we hope everybody out there will participate. Charity.com slash Gesher, C-H-A-R-I-D-Y dot com slash Gesher. J.J. Sussman is international director for Gesher. J.J., you get the final word. What do you want to remind our audience about as we get closer and closer to Erev Tishabov. I'll just leave everyone with the quote that uh, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is one of our uh, patrons, as they call them in England, uh, loves, to, uh, loves to say, which is, I-, I don't need you to agree with me. 
but I need you to love me. And I think that's what it's all about, especially now. We need to love one another, especially as we're going through these challenging times. And, uh, and no better place to uh, bring that message to everybody than together with you, Nathan, who is all about Jewish unity. So thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate that. Always great speaking with you, J.J., and an easy fest to you and your family. J.J. Sussman from Israel, International Director of Gesher. We're always telling you about great causes here, everybody. That much I can tell you. Uh, we may be telling you about a lot of them, but there are a lot of them. And one of them is the, is the Gesher organization. The campaign is on. Seven and a half hours to go, as I say, uh, ironically, in Israel. Uh, the campaign will end just as Erev Tishabov is starting, um, and that's quite appropriate. Uh, help them get to their goal, charity.com slash gesher, C-H-A-R-I-D-Y dot com slash gesher. Tuesday morning broadcast, JM in the AM. Thank you so much for tuning in. Make sure you have your uh, ticket, your virtual ticket for Yomen CSY. It is a rare year that you will be having the same experience <laughs> during Yomen CSY as you zoom in or tune in or virtually participate as the actual NCSYers are having. They'll also be, uh, be tuning in virtually. Uh, so take advantage. Get your ticket. Mordechai Shapiro and Benny Friedman are together this coming Sunday night. I look forward to hosting the event. Um, all you got to do is uh, literally go to this website, summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. Summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. That's it. That's the whole thing. Uh, when you do that, you get your ticket for $18. You enjoy an amazing concert with your family this coming Sunday night. And that about sums it up. Uh, again, it's summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. This portion of NSN programming brought to you by our friends at A&H. We're getting ready for Friday when A&H uh, is again on our menu. <laughs> on the day after Tisha Bov. Uh Abel's and Hyman Kosher Hot Dog Sausage and Deli is the world's best, serving the kosher world since 1954, available at Better Kosher Supermarkets nationwide and at every Trader Joe's nationwide. Remember, go to kosherdogs.net, and this Sunday's you, – if you want to put in an order today, I bet you if you speak to Seth and everybody at A&H, they can get it to you by Sunday, which would be an amazing grilling day, Shabbos Nachamu Sunday. Um, contact them, kosherdogs.net, kosherdogs.net. And don't forget, use promo code radio for your 10% discount. Promo code radio, 10% discount. Our friends at Artscroll give you a 15% discount on everything written by, by Barrel Wine this week. 15% in free shipping if you use promo code radio, 10% across the board. Always use promo code radio when you visit artscroll.com. Oh, and don't forget, if, you, uh, if you're if you looking for a job or you know somebody looking for a job, we are collecting resumes. It's resume at NahumSiegel.com. Resume at NahumSiegel.com. We're looking to help people, literally looking to help people get jobs. Uh, so it's resume at NahumSiegel.com. Uh, feel, um, feel free to send in the resume and to... Uh, Join us in this effort. Anything that's in the uh, not-for-profit Jewish um, uh, executive field, we're going to be forwarding to our friends at uh, the Joel Paul Group. Everything else, we're going to try our hardest to help find jobs for those who need them. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Echonish Mazharav, Zebner of Alevi.
Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. We learned that even during the darkest skulls, Hashem is always with us. We know that Yaakov became frightened and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the dwelling place of Hashem, and this is the gateway of heaven. Why did Yaakov Avinu specifically say at this place to describe it as noira, as awesome? The Zerashimshan asks, why is there a negative expression of Ein Ki This is none other than the house of Hashem. Yaakov Avinu could have merely stated, this is the place of Hashem. We learn in the Halachas of Tishabov that the Beis Yosef says there are people who put a stone under their head to sleep on the night of Tishabov. It's actually a tradition that we get from this Pasuk, which tells us that Yaakov Avinu took me'avne ha'mokom, and he put it underneath its head, Yishka ba'mokom ahu, and that is the place where he slept. In his dream, Yaakov Avinu saw the base of Mikdush being destroyed, and when he awoke, he said, Manoira ha'mokom azeh, how awesome is this place? The Zerashimshan explains that when Yaakov Avinu said, Manoira ha'mokom azeh, he wasn't referring to the land in its current state. He saw it as the future site of the Beis Amikdosh. He was referring to the Beis Amikdosh itself that would be built on this very site. And the Beis Amikdosh he saw was one Bechorbono, lying in ruins. Prophetically he said, Einzeh, this man-made Beis Amikdosh that he saw would not be eternal because there would come a time when it would not exist. It is only the third and final Besamikdosh that would be eternal. However, the land, even in its destroyed state, even when it no longer has the Besamikdosh on it, will always be the Shara Shamayim. It will always be the place where the Tfilos of Klal Yisrael will find their way to Hashem. When Yaakov Avinu saw the Chorban, he called out, that even in the Golos, we can see the holiness and the awesomeness of Hashem. Hashem is always there with us, whether at a time of Geula or in the time of our darkest exile. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser, bringing you morning chizuk. Have a nice day. J.M. in the A.M. Tuesday. Uh, tomorrow is... Uh... Tomorrow is... Uh, there we go. Tomorrow is Erev uh, Tishabov, Abe Foxman. Executive Director Emeritus at the Anti-Defamation League and somebody who is a survivor of the war as a child is going to join us tomorrow on Erev Tisha B'Av here at JM there. Uh, Met Council on Jewish Poverty has a special initiative. Talk about good causes. Has a special initiative that he's chairing to help Holocaust survivors. We'll talk about it tomorrow here at JM there. Sunday is Yom NCSY with Mordechai Shapiro, Benny Friedman, Charlie Harari, Nahum Siegel. Plenty of amazing and incredible um, moments, both musical moments and NCSY moments. Yom NCSY is great, and I saw the program already. The videos are going to be showing and the excitement that's going to be part of the whole show on Sunday. And you get a chance to check it all out 8 p.m. Eastern time this coming Sunday night. Purchase your ticket for your family so you can literally watch and see everything. 
uh, by going to summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy, summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. You have to be nuts for 18 bucks not to uh, purchase this. I mean, I mean, assuming you can afford it, I'm, I'm not trying to be too magnanimous. Um, I'm just saying that if you're a Jewish music fan and or an NCSY fan, for $18 you're getting incredible value uh, with these two amazing artists and more. Uh, and it's also a very special night, and for the first year, you get to experience it the same way the NCS Wires are experiencing it. Usually, usually you're Zooming in or FaceTiming in or, or live streaming in from around the world to see what's happening in Israel. This year, uh, this year everybody is going to be participating in the same way uh, through the uh, live stream. It is one of the strangest summers ever for all of us for a variety of reasons, COVID-19. Um, for David Cutler, it may be uh, the most strange summer. He is, of course, the director of uh, NCSY summer programs, and he's actually in the United States speaking to us for the first time that he's been in the U.S. for a summer in a very, very long time. David Cutler, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. I think you coined a, uh, a new uh, new motto for us. It's usually best summer ever, and now I think we're going to make it strangest <laughs> summer ever. So uh, we appreciate that. Yeah, there are people who say most challenging summer ever. I yeah. think it's the strangest That's summer true. ever. I am talking to you from my, my den in Woodmere, and I am always in Yerushalayim at this point of the summer. And God willing, I hope to be there again uh, next summer. Tell us what it's like. We'll talk about Yomans this wine in a minute. Tell us what it's like on the seventh of Av, which is today, when you're in Israel preparing for tomorrow night, preparing for Thursday. Tell me what that whole Tishabov experience is like uh, for NCS wires and for the leaders when you're uh, in Israel with with thousands of uh, of people on the NCSY summer programs. So honestly, it's very, very special. It's, it's obviously it's a challenging day. You know, Tishabov is obviously a day of mourning, and and it's sad. Uh, but it's very special in NCSY, the programming, the keynotes that go on, um, the different presentations that take place, and then all really building up to that, that really special kumzits that takes place. You know, as Tisha B'Av ends, it's going to be so strange for me not to be at the Kotel this year, ending Tisha B'Av that way. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the most special experience of the summer. That, me, star- that starts when? How many hours or hours and minutes before the end of Tisha B'Av that kumzits start at the Kotel? So, it starts approximately an hour before the end of the fast, give or take a little more, depending on uh, exactly when they start. But it's about an hour, hour and 15 minutes at the most before the end of the fast. But it's, it seems like it takes forever because it's so special. <laughs> um, and it's literally thousands of people that gather around in person. And, and it has become such a, a special event that people really watch around the world. It's, um, it's a very, very special way to end Tisha B'Av. And uh, it's so sad that I'm sitting here this year in Woodmere. i got to be honest with you. Are you thinking of giving people the opportunity to get a taste of what goes on in Jerusalem as Tisha B'Av ends? Are you thinking of, uh, just like as you just said, they log in from around the world, of letting them log in and see something this year? So we are. So we're at and We're going to send out today uh, an email uh, that really tells everybody we're going to have a share a very special video that features it gives you a taste of NCSY Kolo and the Kumzits that takes place every year footage that has taken place uh, over the last number of years of some of the of some of the singing uh, in addition we're going to have uh, Rabbi Benevitz and and Rabbi Kamenetsky and Rabbi Sabolovsky three absolutely you know the powerhouses of the Kolo speaking uh, with, with newly prepared uh, presentations for this year and just right. we're going to show it at two different times on Tishbub one time will be 
as Israel is ending their fast, and one time is going to be as America here is ending their fast. And uh, so about 12.15 and about 7.45, we're going to show it at those two times, and it will be a special taste. Uh, again, it will be nothing like being there and nothing like being there live, but it will be a meaningful you know, 40 minutes or so of some of the singing and three wonderful speakers uh, to inspire you as you are ending your fast. Oh, I'm sure there'll be thousands of people jumping all over that. Obviously, people want to be inspired and uh, end the fast in a way that's appropriate, not just thinking about how you'll break the fast. David Cutler with us. He leads NCSY summer programs, a little bit of a different summer this year. As you just heard, you'll be able to access the uh, videos uh, twice on Tisha B'Av Day, um, once at the very end of the uh, of the fast, and the details are coming out on that. Uh, meanwhile, look, I, I, I have to be careful because when I say when I say a comment like "you got to be crazy not to," it's not fair to our people who obviously you know are in a difficult difficult financial situation. But you have to admit, David Cutler, uh, that you know talk about making lemonade out of lemons. Uh, if if someone is a Jewish music fan and or an NCSY fan. And they don't take advantage of an $18 ticket for this coming Sunday night for their family. I mean, that, that is a little crazy, again, on the assumption they can afford to do so. I mean, you have Mordechai Shapiro, Benny Friedman, Charlie Harari. I have the honor of hosting it. And, and I saw the lineup. It's not just the music. You have a lot of inspiring, wonderful things. And this year, again, Lemonade, this year, everyone's going to be enjoying this presentation in the very same way, the same way that the NCS Wires are going to be enjoying it, because usually they're there, obviously, on the spot on Israel for the live show. Uh, that's the same way that everyone's going to be enjoying it from around the world. So I hope everyone takes advantage and purchases at least one ticket, because there are ways to donate and give more, uh, purchase at least one ticket for this coming Sunday night. Yeah, so I agree with you. Uh, even in the crazy terminology, we're in crazy times. There really are three reasons why we're having Yom NCSY this Sunday night, the way we are. Number one, we have a beautiful gathering of all of our programs every year in Eretz Yisrael, and, and we wanted to keep that on the calendar. It's a very special night for us, and to not have a Yom NCSY, it's bad enough we're not having a summer, essentially, but to not have a Yom NCSY experience, so to experience it this way, we felt it was important to keep that on the calendar. Number two is it's been such a summer of uncertainty and, and, and pain and suffering, and you know people are really don't know where they're going tomorrow, let alone if schools are going to open and how they're going to open. And we felt it was important to have one night of just, of just ruach and happiness and unity um, and inspiration. That, that's what we do best, NCSY Inspires. And, and we, we have two inspiring singers. We have an inspiring MC. We have an inspiring uh, speaker in Charlie Harari. These, are, these people were not picked just by chance. And to have one night where we know on the calendar over the summer is a beautiful night that everyone can look forward to and log in, like you said, for $18 uh, is a great opportunity. And number three, we're using it as a fundraiser. We, we, did, we did cancel our summer. This summer we're out close to $1 million in expenses that we had to lay out this summer that we could not get back. Um, and we, we, we could, you know, we're, we're raising money like a lot of other institutions are. We, we expect Baruch Hashem. We already opened up registration for pre-registration for next summer, I should say. We have hundreds of kids who've already signed up. And we expect there to be a large spike in demand uh, to go to Eretz Israel next summer, especially since nobody went this summer. So we expect big crowds, and we expect people to need financial assistance. And we're raising money for that uh, as part of this evening, as part of this campaign, to make sure we're able to really accommodate you know, all, all the kids that really deserve the special summer experience. And so you know, those are the three reasons. And you know what's remarkable? Thank God people have responded so far. People have responded, not just for the music, but they want to help the cause. They know that, you know, when they support your funds, uh, I mean the specific, you know, scholarship funds, they, they know that literally they're, they're uh, financing uh, the ability for a family to send somebody to Israel. 
And, yeah, in, and in many cases, not not that it matters, obviously, because everyone needs to be inspired. But in many cases, those are public school youth from around the United States. Yeah, they really are, and we're you know we're really working on. Uh, we, we have so what we're so proud of is that we're very diverse. And one of the things, ironically, that's the most important part of NCSY, is that for, for that night we're we're twenty five hundred people strong. We have kids who've never, who just experienced their first Shabbos in Israel, right. and kids who are, you know, totally from a regular, quote unquote, you know, Orthodox home, right. and everybody in between, and from all over the world. We usually have kids there from from uh, from London, from Chile, from Argentina. It's, uh, and then we have people that are just joining us, you know, again, just like over the summer at different points to spend, whether it's Tisha B'Av with us or whether it's Yom and CSY, and it's, uh, you know, it's just a very special atmosphere, and that's why this summer is. It's so sad on, on one respect, but like you said, we're going to take lemons and make lemonade and make a beautiful night, you know, raise some money for our scholarship fund so we can really reload and, uh, and be ready for next year, God willing, because we're, we're ready to, uh, you know, we're really working hard on next summer already to make sure we can accommodate everybody who wants to go. Mordechai Shapiro, Benny Friedman, Charlie Harari, they're already the address we've been giving out to um, reserve a ticket for one's family for Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Shabbos Nachamu Sunday night is summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy, summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. David Cutler is at the best address for people to access this. Yes, it is. And anybody who has questions, you can uh, just send an email to summer at ncsy.org, summer at ncsy.org. Uh, but that is the best address. It has all the information for the evening. It has the. Uh, you can even send also. There's an opportunity to send a message. We're making it also that we're going to have a, a live during the event. If you want to send a thank you message, whether it's to a healthcare worker, whether it's somebody in NCSY or a Rebbe or whatever it might be, uh, you're able to send a message during the. Uh, you know, during the during the event that night, and uh, it's just going to be a very special evening of everybody to get together virtually, and uh, and really just enjoy a beautiful evening. Summer.ncsy.org slash YomNCSY. We should also mention with David on the phone that we will broadcast Monday's show, quote-unquote, from YomNCSY, meaning before the YomNCSY show kicks off, as is our tradition. We will be out in the Long Island area, and we will have a lot of really, really good guests. David went through the lineup with us yesterday. We have some absolute all-stars. Everybody from the U.S. side that we always request, obviously the people in Israel, won't be able to join us this year, so we'll save them for next year, please God. We have a tremendous lineup. And then Wednesday morning, please God, we'll be live from TABC. TABC is being utilized for one of the NCSY summer programs that are taking place now in the New York, New Jersey area. We'll talk more about that next week, about the programs that did get off the ground. And uh, we'll be live on Wednesday morning between 6 and 9 from Bergen County with a show specifically about the programs themselves. And, And David, people should not think that some of the amazing things that we wait for each summer just because of COVID are not going to happen. You are, believe it or not, going to announce some new summer programs next week, meaning uh, not only is NCSY ready to get back on the map and and be in Israel and everywhere else around the world that the programs take place in the summer of 2021, you're ready to expand and add some programs. That's correct. We, we are going to add, uh, God willing, announce three new programs for next summer. Uh, we're actually working on four or five, but we're going to announce uh, three of them uh, on, on Sunday night. And they're really more expansions of uh, of our current programming, expanding the umbrella of some of our, our current programs. Uh, we're not going to go, you know, too crazy with new stuff in, in this era, but we do have uh, we do have some new offerings, and we have uh, just some very 
creative ideas because we're, we're again we're, we're expecting a, a large crowd next summer, God willing. We expect to break our 2,000 number that we've been looking to break for now for you know for this year, and uh, we're very excited to announce these new programs. And like I said, pre-registration is already open for next summer. We have already 300 kids that are you know they're pre-registered for next summer. Uh, and, and that's an opportunity, no money at all. You just get to pre-register. You put your name down on the form, and then when registration opens up, you get a you know you get a coupon code for uh, for registering early, which we, we expand we expect this year to be earlier than ever. Uh, everyone's going to open up registration earlier this year and really focus on the positive that lies ahead. God willing, in summer 2021. What address do people use for pre-register? Summer.ncsy.org. It's right there. The pre-registration is there, and it literally takes 30 seconds to put your name on a form, summer.ncsy.org, put your name on a form, indicate which program you want to go on, um, and then, God willing, when registration applications go open, you know, go live, uh, as soon as we confirm our airfare and are able to open up registration, then, uh, you know, people will be able to register, and you get a discount for simply putting your name on a form right now in, in, in end of July or beginning of August. You know what's funny? It's possible that this lull that you've experienced because of COVID, it could because of how we know everyone's going to be so anxious to rebound and get back to normal and get their kids into, you know, really active programs. It's possible you're just going to shatter the record next summer uh, because of this lull. It's interesting. We, we, we really think that, you know, God willing, things should slowly get back to normal, and, right. we, and we hope to do that. But I can tell you that we're working way harder now already on the, on the summer, you know, coming up for summer 2020 than we ever have in advance. We're going to be completely ready. Our tour providers in Israel are really working hard, but it's going to be very interesting, and there's going to be tremendous demand. Israel is going to be, Rezorat Hashem, absolutely hopping next summer. Right. I would really recommend that everyone plan to be in Israel next summer. Yom Ansiyaswai next summer is on Monday, July 19th, <laughs> uh, the day after Tisha B'Av next summer. And uh, we, you should join us next summer for sure because it's going to be uh, it's going to be awesome. So, so I likely will be flying on Tisha B'Av again. <laughs> yeah, it looks that way. <laughs> um, David, uh, again, uh, the address or best way to access what you offered regarding uh, Tisha B'Av regarding Thursday. Summer.ncsy.org. Everything will be on, on that website. So it's all everybody. there. It's all there Every, on that website. Right? Everything will be there. Yeah, that will be updated today as far as Tishbub is concerned. Okay. And uh, God willing, LMNCSY is there. Pre-registration is there. And uh, we're, we're ready to rock. Everybody, everybody, you got to be crazy. And again, you know the caveats I put when I say that, uh, that I include when I say that. You got to be crazy not to uh, purchase a ticket for Sunday. It's Mordechai Shapiro, Benny Friedman, for your whole family, 18 bucks to a great cause, by the way. This Sunday, 8 o'clock, I look forward to hosting. Charlie Harari's part of it. It's Yoma and CSY. We get to enjoy it together all in the same way. We're all going to be in the same arena this time uh, enjoying it. Um, get your tickets by going to summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. Again, summer.ncsy.org slash yomncsy. David, thanks so much. We'll speak to you, uh, Bezrat Hashem on Monday's show and again uh, Wednesday of next week as well. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure speaking to you, and uh, I'm sure you'll do a fine job Sunday night. Don't be nervous. <laughs> I'm going to try my best, and I appreciate that. Oh, yes, of course, I'll see you Sunday as well. I said Monday, Wednesday, but of course, we'll see David Sunday as well. Tuesday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. It is the 7th of Menachem Av, the 7th of the nine days. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine is the centerpiece of our spoken word programming here during the nine days. Oh, by the way, I wanted to ask everyone to keep in mind uh, Tamar Elisheva Bat Dvora, Tamar Elisheva Bas Dvora for Rafur Shlema, and uh, we very much appreciate that. Tamar Elisheva Bas Dvora. Um, Rabbi Beryl Wine is the centerpiece of our spoken word programming during the nine days, as you know. 
information about his lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. The series we're now in is entitled The Challenge of Secularism. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the rabbi that Rabbi Wine is focusing on. Oh, that's funny. I must have said something that Siri, <laughs> that Siri reacted to. That's funny. Uh, the series is, oh, that's what I said, the series. Uh, the series is a challenge of secularism. The lecture is about Rabbi Mayer Leibish Malbim. Rabbi Beryl Wine at JM in the AM. Rabbi Meir Leibush ben Yechiel Michal, who is known to us as the Malbim. Malbim is the acronym of that name. Mem is Meir, Lamed is Leibush, Beis is Ben, Yud is Yechiel, and Mem is Michal. That's Malbim. His real last name, I, I've told you many times that Jews in Europe really didn't have real last names and that the last names were imposed upon them uh, by the governments, usually uh, not for beneficial reasons. And therefore, Jews were not attached to last names in the same sense as we are today, is that the person wants his last name to be preserved. And therefore, you would find that many families' brothers would have varying last names, especially if they wanted to get out of doing service in the Tsar's army. So in, in Russia, the Tsar's army had a rule that if you were an only son, you were automatically exempted from the army. So a person that had three sons or four sons, by giving each one of them a different last name, so they all claimed to be only sons, and could therefore avoid military service. There were other benefits, but a last name did not mean what it means in our, uh, the surname that just did not mean, a family name just did not have that importance. So his real name was Weiser. That was his, his father's name, Weiser, Weiser. But he called himself Malbim, which was the acronym of the uh, name that he had, Mayor Leibush Ben Yechiel Michel, Mem Lamed Beis Yud Mem. And he is famous, uh, renowned throughout the Jewish world by that acronym, Malbim. Before uh, I talk to you about his life, uh, it's important to realize the Malbim's life story is probably the most tragic life story of any great rabbinic personality in the last two centuries. I and mean, what happened to him, it, uh, it is just uh, almost unbelievable in the intensity of problems that he had. And uh, the Malbim is one of the people in history who posthumously achieved a grandeur and a greatness that he did not have in life. There are many people who are just the opposite, that in life they are considered to be great and important and respected and honored, and then history deals with them in a much harsher fashion, or many times history just ignores them. And then there are people to whom the opposite happens, that their lives are turbulent and full of problems and uh, full of injustices that are done to them. Terrible things happen to them, but somehow they are vindicated by history. And uh, Malbim posthumously uh, 
is uh, this great man of Israel. Whereas in his lifetime, even though he was recognized as a genius and as an innovative creator and a person of great merit, what happened to him in his lifetime not only should not happen to a rabbi, it shouldn't happen to Balabatim even. It shouldn't happen to anybody. And it's a uh, terribly uh, disappointing, disillusioning story to the extent that the story was so sad that it almost is unknown. I'm not here to reveal secrets. I want to tell you that all these tapes are also censored. We don't say everything that we know. But the uh, intensity, again, of problems that he faced, the terrible, terrible blows that he suffered in his lifetime are of such a nature that uh, it's almost beyond human endurance. The fact that in spite of all of these things, the Malbim achieved the reputation that he did and uh, we, a uh, hundred years later after his death, more than a hundred years already have, have passed since his death, uh, his books are, uh, so to speak, bestsellers in the Jewish world, and that uh, they've been republished uh, many times, and they've been translated now into English, and they're being translated into Russian, and uh, they are very popular, and they're very relevant, and they're very current, and very incisive, all of that is a testimony to the greatness of this man, to the greatness of his genius, because the books were created under the most adverse of circumstances. We always, uh, people say, you know, I'm going to take off a year and write a book. I'm going to take off three years and write a book. He didn't have, he didn't take off anything to write the book. He didn't have anything to take off from. And uh, it just... Uh, Anyone who has tried to uh, write or to attempt a great work of scholarship or of research knows how time-consuming and demanding that is on the person's power of concentration, etc. And therefore, when you uh, hear what the Malbim experienced in his lifetime, his books take on a stature far greater than we would have anticipated just hearing about it before. The Malbim was born in 1809. He was born right after Purim in 1809 in a little town called Valaschik, which was in Galicia, on the border of Poland and Austria. It was part of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire of the time, and uh, it was part of it. Would later would be uh, become entirely Austrian. And uh, the Malbim received blows in life when he was a child already. He was orphaned by the age of six. And uh, even though his, his mother later remarried, he never found, uh, as unfortunately happens, not always do the children find satisfaction in the, in the second marriage. So... As a practical matter, he was on his own from the time he was six or eight or ten. And uh, he was a genius. He had in himself uh, a great memory. And from the earliest time on, he writes, he remembers that God gave him, he said, the gift of the pen. So that by the age of 13, he had written a book of poetry, the Malamalbim is a uh, really, oh, I don't want to use the phrase a renaissance man because uh, in our time that's become cheapened also, but 
The Malbim was an unusual person. The Malbim wrote plays, dramas. Uh, he wrote books of philosophy. He was a philologist. He was fascinated by languages. He was a mathematician. He read voraciously. Whatever he got his hands on, he read. He apparently was a, had a photographic memory. And he loved to write poetry. I have here a book that was published to the 100th anniversary of his death in 1979 in Bnei Brak. Malvin died in 1879. He was in the 71st year when he died. And the entire second half of the book are his unpublished poems, which, you know, they don't have many rabbis that uh, who are noted for poetry. I mean, some like me are noted for their voice, but for poetry you don't have. And here, and he, the poetry is fascinating. It's fascinating because of the topics that he wrote upon, and he used the poetry as polemic, as we will see. Uh, I, I, again, I, I'm only saying it so that you have an idea. Sometimes you hear uh, Charles Osgood on the radio, the, uh, ra the news correspondent. So he uh, conveys a story in rhyme, and it's clever, and sarcastic, and, and in rhyme you can do things that you cannot do in prose. And he used rhyme, he used poetry as a weapon. And if he didn't like you, he sent you a poem. And the uh, collection of poems here is uh, really, it's fascinating. But he writes that by the time he was 13, he already had written close to 80 poems. So you're talking about uh, you know, a different child than the ordinary uh, child. And again, maybe it's because he was on his own. He writes there that he had no chevrusa to learn with. He had uh, no, uh, nobody else in town that was his equal in learning, and he had no one to learn with. And the rabbi in town was an elderly person who did not, he, write, he writes, who did not have patience for a 10-year-old, you know. Have to have patience for children, even for big children. You have to be able to put up with stuff. I once heard that the uh, one of the people that I, we're going to talk about in this series, Reb Chaimezer Grajensky. So when he was uh, Reb Yankov Kamenetsky told it to me that when Reb Chaimezer was a very, was a young child, he was terribly mischievous because most of these geniuses, right, are not uh, they're not easily harnessable. So Reb Chaimezer used to ride a goat into the classroom, right? Imagine if you're the Rebbe and this kid's riding the goat into the classroom, right? And the kid can learn better than you. When the kid is 10 or 11, he's already, he's way ahead of the Rebbe. So you can understand that, you know, it was hard to, it was hard to run the class if you had a kid like that in the class. It was hard to deal with him. So he writes that by the time he was 13, by the time he was bar mitzvah, he had no one to learn with. And the older rose in town really had no relationship to him. He was all alone. He was an orphan. So he said his chevrusa was his pen. And there's a great insight into that. Because the truth of the matter is that if one writes and is careful and reads it over and edits, writing is a great chevrusa. Writing is a great companion. Because... 
the, the Torah, especially the Gemara, if we deal with it orally. If you come into yeshiva, you'll hear they're hollering at each other. They speak to each other. It's all oral, give or take. Oral, give or take, you know, you can say something very, very wrong and get away with it, either because you're persuasive or you holler loud enough, you out-shout the other person. But when you write it down on the page and you look at it coldly and you see that what you're saying is nonsense, writing has that characteristic to it, that in the cold reality of the matter, it, it makes you think very carefully about what's being written. So the Malbim said that the pen was his chavrusa. The pen was his partner in learning. That's how he came, that's how he came to learn. He started to write. And he wrote from the earliest age till his last day. In one of the most prolific rabbinic writers in the history of the Jewish people. And he undertook massive projects that people would never imagine would be finished. Most of them he did finish. Many he left unfinished simply because it's an impossible project for one person to finish. In our time today, we have encyclopedic works on Torah which are being done mainly in Israel, but also here in the United States, but it's always being done by an organization. It's done by a group of scholars. The Encyclopedia Talmudis is being put out by 300 scholars who work on it. So if you have 300 scholars that are working on it and you have uh, computers and you have microfilm and you have records and uh, you have all the modern technology, so it can come out. But here you're talking about a one-man operation without any of this. Now that you have to realize how that, that, what kind of people we're talking about. It's the same thing I always, in Eurydia, if you study uh, the Eurydia, so one of the great commentators to Eurydia is the Shach, Reb Shapsi who lived in the 1600s. So he, uh, by the way, when he was 24, wrote his commentary, which has remained till today the basic commentary on the laws of Kashrus and the Jewish halacha. So the Shach there, sometimes he'll rattle off 40 books. You look here, look here, look here, look here. He didn't have a library. He once saw the book. He saw it once. He passed through a town. But that's he only had to see it once. And he lived at the time of the great upheaval, the Chmelianitsky uh, massacre of the Jewish people, Xeris Tachvatat, 1648 1649. He was a refugee on the road. And he says, and you look it up in this book, this book, and then, boom, like a machine gun, 15 books, 20 books. And when you realize that that's the power of the human mind, right? That's not, uh, you know, that's not uh, IBM. Because today we are all scholars, right? I thank God I have a large library. I'm a scholar, right? Well, you want to, if you give me enough time, it's like a million monkeys can type Shakespeare, right? If you give Barrel Wine enough time, he can prepare a class, right? And it's all there. You just got to look it up. Look it up and put it together. It's there. But it, you're talking about people who didn't have that. And therefore, that's why their genius is so, uh, so astounding to us. So he was known as the Ili from Volin. He, was, he had a world reputation when he was 13. Now the custom among Jews then, especially in that part of the world, is that they married when they were very young. They married in their early teens. 
and among others, among Chassidim especially, they became engaged many times when they were six, eight, or ten years old. And then they got married after uh, when they reached puberty. But it was most, a lot of it was because, unfortunately, the life expectancy was very short. But that was the custom. And the, and the Talmud is also supports the custom of getting married early. Only later in the 20th, the early 20th century did the pendulum swing, especially among Lithuanian and Russian Jews, that they started getting married late. But when he was 14, he married. And he married the wealthiest girl in town, whose father knew of the greatness of the Malbim, and he wanted to... Uh, he wanted to him as a son-in-law. But um, you know, there's a bad joke that they always tell in the yeshiva that the guy went out with the girl and he came back to reports that they said, you know, tremendous father and mother and, you know, and there's wealth and they're willing to support the nice people and everything. So they said, so what's the problem? He said, the problem is I got to marry the girl. Yeah, that's, that's the kicker to all of these things, right? is that you have to marry the girl. And he and the girl were not compatible. They were not compatible. So by the time he was 16, he had had a child and a divorce. And uh, it left a... Uh, he was already traumatized by the, by the fact that he was an orphan. And he knew himself to be a different person because of his genius and because of his, his, uh, his different nonconformist views. And now this uh, further uh, shook him. It was a very, very sad experience. And he left his home. He left his home and he left the area where he was born. Uh, he himself writes later that he left out of a sense of shame because even though divorce was and is permissible under Jewish law, but in those societies, it was uh, rare. It was 1% of the cases, whereas today it's a much, much higher percentage. But it had a social stigma to it. And because of the social stigma involved, he, uh, he left. And he began his travels. And we will see that all of his life he was an itinerant wanderer. He never found peace anywhere. He never could stay in a place. Uh, there always were legitimate reasons why you should leave and move on. But when a person occupies, as he will, over 12 rabbinic positions, and will move from one end of the Jewish world to the other, from uh, Smolensk in Russia to Paris in France to Bucharest in Romania to Turkey, all over the Jewish world. So then you have to come to the conclusion that, uh, that he was not a person who could sit. And there are people like that. It's not just that the, the wanderlust is after them. It's just their personality is of such a nature that they... And here, at a very early age, he already began his wanderings. He was 16, and he left. And he went east 
to the Ukraine and there he came in contact with great Hasidic masters, great Hasidic leaders, especially the Zidachoyva Rebbe, the Reb Tzvi Hirsch of Zidachoyva, who was the Talmud of the, uh, of the Yira Kodesh, of the Chose of Lublin, and who was one of the uh, uh, dynastic uh, Hasidic leaders who had a very strong influence and who was a great and holy pious man and the Malbim found in him a father he found not only a Rebbe he found not only a teacher and a mentor he found in him a father and he stayed by him for two years but he stayed by him almost as a recluse in a room and he writes there that he devoted himself then to the study of Kabbalah, to the mystic stu study of Kabbalah, and that the Zidachoyver Rebbe provided him with all of his needs, which uh, were not many. He provided him with food and with drink and with shelter and with a bed. But he provided him with more than that. He provided him with direction and support. And he infused in him... Uh, a spirit which the Malbim retained all of his life, the spirit to be able to overcome all adversity. No matter what happened to him, the Malbim was able to rise above it. And he writes, uh, he, has, uh, he has a number of autobiographies written at different points in his lifetime, or autobiographical letters or essays, because as I mentioned, he was a prolific writer and he always expressed himself in writing. And he writes always that whenever he was in trouble, he saw the Zita Choyver. So Chassidim says, you know, he saw the Zita Choyver, means that literally he saw the Zita Choyver. Uh, but if you don't want to buy that, then you want to say something else. But he certainly, when he thought of his problems, the Reb Tzvi Hirsch of Zita Choyver was the one that saved him. And that's the koach of a rebbe. That's the koach of a great man is to be able to infuse into his students or into his followers or into his family the ability that even at the worst times of life they don't feel that they're alone. And that's no mean feat. So the Malbim was a chosid even though he wasn't a Chassidish Rebbe. And he became a master of Kabbalah. He knew the secrets, he mastered Kabbalah. But the, uh, he agreed that he would not uh, delve into Kabbalah. This is, all by the, this is all when he's only 18 years old. Usually we find that Kabbalah was reserved for much older people and for much later uh, station in life. He was, he was 18 and he was unmarried. He was divorced. And uh, he, was, uh, he was alone in the world, but apparently the Zita Choyver in his wisdom saw that that's what his soul needed. And he provided him with that. He now uh, undertook a, uh, the first of his monumental projects, which was a commentary to the Shulchan Aruch Orachayim. To the Shulchan Aruch Orachayim. And he called the Sefer Artsos Achayim, the land of the living. 
and he wrote, it, it, it's hard to believe the Sefer was written when he was between the ages of 17 and 18, those two years. It is a, it's a masterpiece. He had a project to do it for all of Shulchan Aruch. He never completed that project because he started other projects. He was, that's also part of the genius is he was doing 10 things at once. So when you do 10 things at once, not all of them get finished. But even the little that's done on any project is of inestimable value. So the Arts of Sachaim was a very fa- remains today a very famous safer, a very famous book on the uh, Shulchan Aruch, and it contains in it a uh, fascinating viewpoint on many difficult questions in halacha, and there's a great deal of original thought, original research and original thought. The custom in those days, as, as in our days, but in our days it's different, but in, in those days, a safer of that magnitude would not be published unless it had a haskoma, unless other noted rabbis would approve. So the custom was that they would send uh, either the manuscript of the safer or parts of the manuscript of the safer to great rabbis, and the great rabbis would read the Sefer, and then they would write a letter of approbation, a letter of approval. Usually the letter said, I'm so busy, I don't have a time to read it, but it's probably good, or it's a mitzvah to help him. But if you had a letterhead from that rabbi, no matter what it said, I mean, it was good enough. But the Malbim, again, in his... Uh, in his, in his wanting to see the world, which was part of his travel, went to the great rabbis. He didn't mail them his safer. So we find that he was by Rabbi Kiva Eger in Posen, and he went by the Rabbi Moshe Sofer in Prezborg and Bratislava, and he went to Nicholsburg, and he was by all of the great rabbonim. And, he, and so they not only had a chance to see the safer, they had a chance to see him. There, there are many times in life that the author is greater than his book. There are some times in life that the book is greater than the author. Strange as that sounds, but it's, it's happened. But it, and, and it's happened in the Jewish field also. Here the author was greater than whatever he wrote. As great as his books are, the impression left by the Malbim and his personality and his wisdom, and he was a, a very clever person, as I'll be able to point out. And if you, he was always able to, he was a great conversationalist, and he always had stories, and he always had wise quips, and he, had, he was just a, a, an unending spring of knowledge and of uh, good intelligence. So when they saw him, so then they wrote major haskomis to his sefer. The Chassam Sefer's haskomis to his sefer is one of the major ones, more than the Chassam Sofer writes on anyone else. Reb Kiva wrote him a letter and said that my policy is never to give haskomis to any sefer, but yours is not any sefer. And this again, this was all when he was 18 years old. And now he became, because of that, these rabbis talked him up, so to speak. They gave him his reputation. 
in the Chsam Sofer writes, and the number of his chuvas, he has a chuva to a rabbi in Trieste. So he says there that the Malbim is going to be in Trieste. Imagine he traveled all the way to Trieste, the Adriatic and the Italian border. He said he's going to be there. He said, don't let him go. Sit with him. Talk to him. You'll learn so much from him. So you get a letter like that from the Chsam Sofer. So when the Malbim came to Trieste, they made him a reception. You know what I mean? They, 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 they were interested to see him. He wasn't the uh, ordinary uh, young person coming to town looking for favors. So his reputation before he was 20 years old, his reputation amongst the scholarly rabbinic element of the Jewish people was already sky high. They all knew that there's a wonder child around. There's somebody that's going to do great things. In 1834, the Arts of Sachayim was published, and it was published in Breslau. Now, Breslau, which is uh, Germany, Poland, Silesia, it's whatever you want. It depends when you want when you're talking about it. Today, it's Poland, but it has a Polish name to it. But Breslau was the headquarters uh, for reform and Haskola in the 1800s. There was a rabbinical seminary in Breslau, a reform rabbinical seminary, and it was one of the most bitterly contested battlegrounds in the Jewish world. And none other than Abraham Geiger himself who was the leading exponent of reform and the man who made reform into the debacle that it turned into, who radicalized reform. Geiger is the one that really did the job. So he came to Breslau. And he came to Breslau with a demand that he should be incorporated in the rabbinic court, in the Beth Din of Breslau. It's a little like what goes on, you know, the world doesn't change. The reform movement went to the government. It said that the government should de declare equal rights, not allowed to discriminate. They're a legitimate branch of Judaism, and as such, their representative is entitled to be on the Bezdin. The, or the Bezdin, which had been only orthodox and traditional until then, the rabbis opposed it with every fiber of their being. However, they were afraid that they weren't going to be able to do anything against the government. And in this matter, the Malbim, even though he was only 25 years old and had no official position in Breslau, he took a leading role in the fight against Geiger, and the Malbim became one of the great orators of the time, another talent of his that he was a tremendous orator. We one would say almost a demagogic orator. He was able to hold a crowd spellbound for hours, and he was able to, to move the crowd. We'll find a number of times it got him into trouble. But in Breslau, he led the fight against Geiger, and he prevailed that Geiger was not... The government finally withdrew the uh, order to put, to put Geiger on the Bezdin, but the rabbinic seminary and Geiger, he was recognized as the rabbi, etc., but they were not on the Orthodox Bezdin. And a great deal of that was due to the oratorical efforts of the Malbin. You have to realize that the Orthodox rabbinate at that time, and even to a certain extent in later times, 
oratory was not their main power. Most of the rabbis only spoke twice a year, Shabbos Shuvah and Shabbos Agodol. And the uh, speeches and joshes were left in the hands of magidim, of, uh, of itinerant preachers, not all of whom were of high uh, scholarship or even of high moral repute. And the rabbi, it was like beneath the rabbi to speak. And therefore, a great weapon which could have been used to mobilize the masses on behalf of traditional Judaism almost fell by default, fell by the wayside by default. No one, no one, no one employed it. No one used it. The Malbim, however, always used it. The Malbim was a powerful orator. And here in Breslau, we have the first example of it. However, what happens is that when you get up and you're the point man, and you make speeches, and you uh, criticize reform and the masculine, and you do it in a demagogic fashion, you gain enemies. People remember you. And the Malbim will be dogged his whole life by the reform movement who pursued him to every position that he ever occupied. And he was the man that they were out to get. And we'll see that they did get him a few times in, in difficult, shameful circumstances, but it happened. In Breslau, in 1838, he married for a second time. And he, uh, when he married a second time, he had from the second marriage one daughter and one son. Uh, when he married the second time, he had to have some means of support for the family. This time he did not marry a wealthy woman. And therefore, he accepted upon himself the role of becoming a rabbi in a community, something which he wanted to avoid all of his life, but which circumstances always apparently forced him into. And he took a community near Breslau called Varshina, which was a small community, and we find him at the end of 1838 in Varshina as the rabbi. In, in Varshina, he was hired for the munificent sum of 20 uh, marks or whatever it was a year, whatever the, the currency was, which at that time was barely a subsistence living, but it was some sort of a living. When he came there after a year, he asked for a raise in true rabbinic tradition. And he was granted an increase of another four uh, ducats, whatever it was. Not bad, right? 20% raise, not bad. But that raise cost him because uh, the masculine, the reform from Breslau pursued him to it was only about 20 kilometers, and they spread tales about him, and they slandered, and they made up stories about him. And when he asked for the raise, so there were Balabatim there who said, you know, what do you mean he's getting a raise? Why should we give him a raise? So even though the heads of the community pushed the raise through, there always were people who now resented him, or they felt that he was not entitled to the raise. And therefore, they had all sorts of meetings about the rays and all sorts of flack about it to such an extent that he became disgusted. 
And he wrote them a letter. The letter is here in the Sefer. It's in one of the... Um, rabbis should never write letters. Or if you write them, don't mail them. I have a drawer full of unmailed, beautiful letters. Lincoln said that. You know, Lincoln had the, in the Civil War, he wrote many letters and he kept them all in the firing generals, hiring, doing the right to members of the cabinet, and he left them all in his drawer. He never sent them. So that has the effect that it defuses you. Very important to have that, because otherwise you holler at your wife. That doesn't get you anywhere either. And if you don't mail it, so it doesn't get you into trouble. At least until 50 or 80 or 100 years later, you know, when the letters are opened. But he mailed the letter. And the letter, he gave it to the Balabat, and he said, you don't think I'm worth the extra four? Here it is. I give it back to you. I give you back the 20. Anybody and anybody that thinks that I'm not worth the money, that I don't earn the money, and then at the end he was so angry he gave him back the Rabonis. He gave he quit. Uh, in the long history of the rabbinate, one has to have a very thick skin. And uh, Meshur Rabbein also tried to quit a few times, but God didn't let him. It's not politic to quit. But the Malbin here left. He left his position. He was only there for three years. In 1841, he left. But the Malbin was such a name, and he was such a talented person. It's interesting that in spite of all of his track record, to the last moment of his life, he is always deluged with offers to become a rabbi. And in uh, 1841, he moved to another community called Kampne, where he stayed for the longest period in his life. There he was 17 years a rabbi. He stayed till he was 1858. In those 17 years is when he began his massive work, and he did most of it, the Sefer, the commentary to Torah, Nevi'im, and Ksuvim. His commentary to the Chumash, his commentary to the prophets, his commentary to the rest of Tanakh. It's called HaTorah V'HaMitzvah. This commentary is so great. One of the uh, Rabbi Eisel Charef, Rabbi Eisel Slonimer, who was uh, one of the great geniuses, rabbinic geniuses of the time, and who was a great Talmud Chochem, but who was a great jokester, a man of a prodigious sense of humor, who was famous in Europe for, for his funny sayings, when he met the Malbin, he said, I want to congratulate you, he said, on writing this marvelous Sefer on Tanakh. And I want to thank you for writing a Sefer on Tanakh, because if you would have written the Sefer on Gomorrah, all of us other rabbis would have nowhere to hide, right? You would have put us to shame. But you expended your genius on Tanakh, so that we're, we're still great rabbis because our Sforim are on the Talmud. He had two reasons why he chose to concentrate on Tanakh. One reason is simply because he felt as correctly, uh, educationally that's correct, that without a proper knowledge of Tanakh, without a proper knowledge of Chumash, of Nevi'im, Maksuvim, you can't be a Jew. You just, you know, that's like the Alevays of being a Jew. It's, it's, uh, it's unimaginable what has happened to us. Not only in the secular circle, but even in the religious circle. That we're ignorant of our book. 
absolutely ignorant of it. We don't know how to read it. We know, we don't know we don't know anything. And he saw that coming. So he wrote a commentary that would allow a person, number one, to understand the simple explanation, the beauty of the language, because as I mentioned to you, he was a great man in grammar and in language. Number two, to understand how the rabbis derived from each and every verse the halachas and traditions that we have, how the oral law is integrally a part of the written law. It's not something that was invented later, but that only when you know the oral law, you see that it's written in the written law. It's not, it's not an added appendage, but it's part and parcel of it. And the third thing is he wanted to bring out the great moral values and uh, character traits and the Weltanschauung of the Torah, what the Torah had to say about, about life. All of that is in this magnificent parish. So you have really a three-tiered commentary. Tier number one is the explanation of the words and the meaning and the sentences, the story, how to, how to, how to understand the, the, what, what, what it says. The second tier is how the oral law is built into the written law. That's especially true, for instance, in the Chumash Vayikra, where he has the Torah's Kohanim, and his parish is a commentary to the words of the rabbis in the Torah's Kohanim, or in Dvorim, and the Sifri, etc. And the third area is really a book of philosophy, or of Hashkofa, or of Musr, a book of values, a book of... How Jew, how did you, how are you supposed, to, how is a Jew supposed to look at the world? How does God look at the world? Which is a really a Jewish understanding of the Tanakh. The Jewish understanding of the Tanakh is Kaviochel, how does God look at the world? We know how we look at it, right? You read the paper, you know, you know how the New York Times looks at the world. But how does God look at the world? And we'll see that if a person is blessed enough that he's able to get on God's frequency, so to speak, and he begins to see the world a little like how God sees it. It's a different world. It's a different world personally, privately, for himself, for his wife, for his family. It's a different world for his community. It's a different world for the whole world. He sees things differently. And the, 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 all of that's in the parish in the Malbim. Grand, grand parish, just a uh, tremendous monumental work. The first volume came out on Yeshaya, and then the second one on Eov, and then on Shir Hashirim, and eventually, in the 17 years, he put out all of them, completely. They put it out on his own expenses, borrowed money. He was a pauper all of his life because of his books. He got no advance from the publisher. And uh, all the money that's being made today on his books, uh, none of it goes to his family. You can be certain of that. But the book is here. The book is, the book is monumental in its scope. And it's, and it's modern. It's relevant. It's just, just unbelievable. The second reason was that he wanted to write a book to disprove the Bible critics to disprove reform, to, to make people see how false 
the secularists were and are in their treatment of the Bible. What, what, what the secular Jews and non-Jews have done to the Bible, nobody would tolerate being done to Shakespeare. The distortions, the unfairness, the lack of intellectual honesty. And he was in the heart of it, right? Even when he came in Breslau, he saw it. And therefore, he devoted himself to fight the cause against it. And his parish was meant to be a one of many of the time, by the way, the Ksava Kabbalah, uh, there are there are many many perushim that came out in the 19th century, uh, the Torah Tmima, uh, later the Nitzivs Perish to Chumash, uh, all of which all of whom had the same idea of combating the evils of biblical criticism and of the secular dismantling of the Torah. Because the Sefer was so good, so again, it rankled the secularists and the reform and the masculine because uh, it was not something that they could uh, just push away with their hand because say that, well, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He also wrote a uh, number of famous sarcastic poems which he printed against some of the leading masculine of the time, like Otomar Cohen Levinson and others. And all of that, again, just sharpened the, uh, the bitter personal feud, so to speak. There's a famous story. There's a famous story that's told that, the, uh, that somebody once came to him and said that it says in the, uh, in the Haskola, I mean, I'm sorry, it says in the Kabbalah that the, uh, that the angels are afraid uh, that there are certain angels that are afraid of great Talmidei Chachomim and there are certain angels that are afraid of dogs. So he, so he came to, so the, the man came to him and he said, he said, well, he said, Rebbe, when you walk in the street, what are they afraid of? Well, that's a pretty big insult. So, uh, so the Malvin said to him, well, I'll tell you what, he said, you and I, let's walk in the street together and they'll be afraid of both of us. He had the, the, he had the ability to really, uh, uh, you know, to cut a person. And he used it. He did not restrain either his tongue or his pen. And therefore, that intensified all of, all of the, the opposition to him. In 1858, he received what was the largest position in his life. He became the chief rabbi of Bucharest in Romania. On the surface, it was a great job. It was a big salary. It was a large Jewish community. It was an old, famous community. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the community that was at all manageable and that he would be, have any modicum of success because the community was already split. There was a very large reform section, and the traditional Jews were also split into three different groups. The, those, the, the Valachians themselves, who are from Romania, and then there were Austrians, and then there were Russians, so none of the Lanslite got together. They fought amongst each other. 
and you had a very large reform section, and the reform used, almost shamelessly, they used their influence in government uh, against the other Jewish groups. His first problem in Bucharest naturally came from the butchers and the shochtim. Because what happened was that uh, the, he, uh, he, he wanted that the shochtim and the butchers should not sell kosher meat to the reform community. Whatever his motivation in that was. And he uh, forced them to take a promise, an oath to him that they would not do so. And they took the oath to him, but they kept on selling anyway. And when they did that, so then he said their shechita there was not permissible, and he tried to close all the butcher shops. Well, kashris is always the minefield that Rabbonim get blown up in, especially butcher shops. And uh, fortunate is the rabbi that is in a town of vegetarians. And uh, they, therefore, he had not only to reform against him, he had the shochtim and the butchers against him. He attempted, it's, it's, it's such a, a, a story, he attempted to build an Erev in Bucharest because he saw that most Jews carried on Shabbos and that he was unable to convince them not to carry. So in order to save them from Chilu Shabbos, he, was, he built an Erev, and he built an Erev with the wires, with the, uh, the telegraph wires which existed then. What happened then was that the reform went and they informed the one, some of the, the local noblemen, one of the local noblemen that the Jews are putting, you know, a fence around this property, etc. So the nobleman went out and he cut it down. J.M. in the A.M., we are going to continue with Rabbi Wine's lecture about Rav Meir Leibish Malbim from the series The Challenge of Secularism. We will try. We might have an opportunity to actually conclude the lecture today. We're going to try our best. We'll do as much as possible, then we'll start with a new lecture tomorrow, obviously. Tomorrow, Abe Foxman, very appropriate, Erev Tishabov, to speak to someone who has a child survived the war. Uh, Abe Foxman, at one time the executive director of the ADL, uh, for many, many decades. Uh, he'll join us tomorrow. Very much looking forward to it. He's, he's actually leading an initiative on behalf of the Met Council on Jewish Poverty for Holocaust survivors. And we will talk about it tomorrow here at JM in the AM. Very appropriate for an era of Tisha B'Av. Uh, please keep in mind Tamara Lisheva Bastvora. Tamara Lisheva Bastvora. We very much appreciate that. Also, uh, someone wrote on the app on the... Um, on the uh, NSN app earlier this morning when I was speaking about the Herzog program in Israel that many people go to every single year, and this year obviously it's virtual. Someone wrote that Herzog College has lectures continuing through Tisha B'Av morning. Just go to herzog.ac.il, herzog, H-E-R-Z-O-G, dot A-C dot I-L, and you can get uh, information about all of that. Very, very worth it. Uh, really, really worthwhile, so check it out. And enjoy. I remind you that Yom Wise is coming Sunday. Mordechai Shapiro, Benny Friedman. I'll be the MC. Charlie Harari is going to be there as well. Summer.ncsy.org. It's 18 bucks, everybody. Do your family a favor. B- buy them an $18 ticket for a great Mordechai Shapiro, Benny Friedman concert. 
And Yom NCSY in general is a really uplifting event, and all those components are going to be part of it. They have great videos, messages, etc., that you'll enjoy. Uh, summer.ncsy.org slash Yom NCSY. Summer.ncsy.org slash NCSY. All right, so keep that in mind. Um, and we're brought to you, of course, by our friends at A&H. Abel's and Hyman Kosher Hot Dog Sausage and Deli is the world's best. The hot dog's now available at Trader Joe's nationwide. Keep that in mind. And a reminder, as um, uh, we play Rabbi Barrel Wine and his uh, lectures are the centerpiece of our spoken word programming now during the nine days, uh, information about Rabbi Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. Also the website, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And also keep in mind that uh, our friends at ArtScroll are offering all Rabbi Wine titles at um, 15% off and free shipping this week in honor of the fact that he's doing our spoken word programming during the nine days. Uh, go to artscroll.com, use promo code radio. Any Rabbi Wine title, go to artscroll.com, use promo code radio. Uh, our good friend Rabbi Yoshua Marchuk is with us live via telephone. He's getting set for the 9th of August. The 9th of August is Bike NCSY. No joke. Those of you who thought this event won't take place this year, you are wrong. It, it is, in fact, taking place this year on the 9th of August. Rabbi Marchuk, of course, is director of NCSY alumni, and he is the founder of Bike NCSY. Rabbi Yoshua Marchuk, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning, Malcolm. Great to be here. Great to hear your voice. I appreciate that. Wonderful to speak with you. So August 9th is Bike NCSY, and I've just made a big deal, as you heard, about the fact that there is a Bike NCSY this year. How different will this year's Bike NCSY be? Malcolm, it's, uh, it's actually took a, uh, a reroute, to a tremendous reroute that uh, potentially with the world where it was going um, through the pandemic over the last bunch of months was a little concerning. But just the opposite has, has developed and exploded, and it's going to be very, very exciting and very, very different this year because instead of being tucked away in one location in the Catskills, we're going to be in 15 different cities across North America running 25 different routes simultaneously. And this way it's not just for the exception to the rule for people that could be upstate, but it's actually going to be from coast to coast and from the northern to the southern borders of the United States, and we're really excited about it. So, so it sounds like basically you've chosen or you've, you've set up or implemented a variety of routes around the country so that people in different regions can participate. And frankly, you know, they talk about COVID teaching us how to adjust. This may not be a bad adjustment in general, and now you're offering multiple routes around the country. Yeah, we're really excited about it. We, we, um, because of what's, what's, what's going on with the pandemic, the, the, if, if no one's noticed, if you haven't been on the streets, um, cycling has exploded right. across the country. In April alone, the sales were over $1 billion, a 75% growth in sales in just April in between helmets and, and bicycles and accessories, which is the largest, first time we ever went above $1 billion in one month of sales in the United States. Right. And, you know, you, you can't, inventory is gone in, in, in cycling shops. There's repair lines are down the block and around the corner for people pulling out their old bikes from once upon a time. And because of that, people were excited and approached us. And they said to you, you know, we heard you wanted to do some routes. 
and we keep getting calls and emails about, hey, could you set up a route near us? Can you set up a route near us? And we, you know, setting it up and going ahead and giving all the excitement and, and expectation that Bike NCSY is known for with, with, our, with our swag and our jerseys and the like, and going ahead and making a community, as NCSY does so well, with people across, across the country. Well, we're right, we're right on top of Frank's Bike Shop, as many people who are familiar with our lower Manhattan studios know, so I can attest. Uh, certainly to the long lines and the busyness. Did you buy anything new uh, during COVID? Did you buy any new uh, bike equipment in the last couple of months? So I, uh, I actually just did. I, I upgraded. Uh, I upgraded my tires a bit. I needed nice. to. Uh, I needed a little bit of a, of a boost <laughs> and such. Um, but uh, but uh, you know, listen, I uh, I'm uh, you know more excited about that. I, uh, I I've gotten myself. All tuned up, just like everybody else has. I waited on the line, just like everybody else has, and um, and and it's it's, it's coasting me through uh, through the uh, the south shore of Long Island, you know, really really nicely. So now August 9th is the event, but you're on this week because there's some deadline approaching, correct? Yeah, um, we have, like I said, we didn't know where what this world was going to take us a couple of months ago, right. and uh, we uh, we turned it around and put our focus on and. We have uh, we have now been running, you know, uh, bike NCSY campaign since uh, the middle of May, and uh, and thank God we are all but sold out of many of the jersey sizes. Wow. Um, so for people who want to register, um, we've had an explosion, and uh, we deal we do still have a number of number of sizes, and we'd love to sell those last few. The people that are interested and excited and want to get involved, but um, but as far as registration goes, we're looking. To uh, plan to go into Shabbos with a with a closed registration and uh, an opportunity to participate in other ways, but but 100% a closed registration for uh, for Bike NCSY 2020. All right, so basically there's no official deadline, but basically this weekend is the deadline, so you know you're going to be sold out by then in terms of registration. Anybody out there who wants to register and join any of the local routes for Bike NCSY, it's an amazing way to raise money and an amazing way to get out there and do an amazing activity. Uh, it's bike.ncsy.org, bike.ncsy.org. The reason is obvious why it's exploded during COVID. It's an outdoor activity. It's essentially alone, right? You're distanced from everybody, obviously. I don't even think you're required to wear a mask, right? As you whiz by people, there's probably not even a requirement for you to wear a mask as you're biking. Am I right about that? Correct. The doctors have said, you know, you have to keep a, a mindset of, uh, of being socially distant right. when you come to stops and such like that. But more, oh, right. more, more along the lines of the fact right. that we are nice and separated. At the beginning, we didn't know what was going on. Actually, the first uh, introduction to our, uh, our swag for this year was a, a specific bike NCSY mask. Um, where people were wearing them, and uh, when we got through the, you know, a lot of the big hurdles here in the uh, in the Northeast um, at the beginning, and they shouldn't come back. Um, we, uh, we we actually did create a bike NCSY mask um, that we had sent out to all our previous riders. <laughs> That's cool. I like that. <laughs> uh, oh, but I didn't even think of it. But this, you're right. The stop. So people need to be responsible when they're riding. They don't wear, and if they're near a stop near somebody, obviously they could just. Uh, put it on or slip it on. Um, it's bike.ncsy.org. Now, you mentioned that there are other ways for people to be involved, even if they're not registered this week. And I would assume you mean, you know, sponsor a rider, uh, sponsor a team, et cetera, et cetera. I assume they could do that till and maybe even past August the 9th. Tell me about the sponsorship and what people need to do on the website. Correct. So if you go, as, as you mentioned, to bike.ncsy.org, you have an opportunity to, to pick from the uh, you know 130 plus riders that we have on the website right. to go ahead and sponsor them in their pursuit of raising critical funds to be able to help kids get to Eric's Trail to learn Torah this coming fall 
this coming year in, uh, in our Israel. So much of the senior class was taken away by this COVID-19 and all the issues that have gone along with it. They lost so much of that second semester of their final year of yeshiva and seminary, day school, public school kids across the board. And so much of, of, of that moving forward into their adulthood is contingent on them getting Tarek Strel. And by sponsoring and getting involved with Bike NCSY, helping those kids, all of that money, all those funds that you're going to be sending in, 100% we're going to go to going and sponsoring kids to learn in yeshiva and seminary next year. Kids whose families would not have been able to get them there without it. So you can pick from, you know, from sponsoring the event in general, there's a donate ban, or as I said, there, is, there, there are young children through, you know, grandparents that are riding, maybe even not from Siegel, we'll surprise us one year, um, <laughs> riding in bike and CSY, and you could find them and help them support other kids going to Trail and going to learn in Yeshiva Seminary. By- there's a particular, oh. yeah, I'm sorry. No. no, go ahead. No, there's a particular interesting uh, team. You had mentioned the teams that are out there, and there are, they, they, they range from grandparents and families right. to, to groups of friends that are in school and the like and different NCSY chapters. You're, you're part of a there team. Actually, I, you're part of a team, right? I, I'm, I'm part of a team, the NCSY alumni team, right. and, the, you know, it makes me very proud to be, to be a part of it. Love for you to come in and, uh, and join that, uh, that sponsorship over there and, uh, and, and be a part of it. Um, but what, something very interesting developed last, uh, in the last few weeks is that a number of, you know, the, our, our rides are by and large, of the 25, 25 rafts that we have are by and large, um, you're talking between 10 and 50 miles, and right. you vary in the distances and the elevation that people want to, you know, be involved with and to ride. But we uh, we have one specific ride that's a little bit different. It's called the Montauk 220, and uh, it's being captained by uh, Mr. Nathan Ginsbury, a, uh, a friend of mine and a, uh, a very serious cyclist. And he is, uh, he, he, he and I spoke about it a couple of weeks back, and we fielded a team that are going to leave from the five towns right and early at Nates and bike out to Montauk, Long Island, which is 110 miles, have uh, some support along the way, have themselves uh, something to eat along the way as well, and then turn around, get back on their bikes, and ride back to the five towns. Uh, so you have a very interesting uh, dynamic of 220-mile planned ride for it, one day wow. on August 9th. How many hours round trip is that around? It's probably, it's probably, depending on weather conditions and the like, probably about 13 hours in the cycle, in the saddle. Wow. Unbelievable. Rabbi Yoshua Marchuk is with us, bike.ncsy.org, bike.ncsy.org. By the way, one more point I wanted to make. You always have amazing photos of these bike uh, NCSY days in your gallery online, but this year you're going to have from so many different places, so many different backgrounds, so many different images. It's going to make, the, it's going to make looking at the website a lot more fun. Yeah, we're very excited about it. We're, we're very, very excited about it. To be able to, to pull um, from the different locations throughout the country where where uh, people are getting out there, and they're introducing rides to myself, and I'm excited because yeah. when this when we can start moving back to regular life and traveling, I like to go to different cities and uh, and rent yeah. a bike and, and go out and try different trails. I'm going to have it built in, and the website will be around 12 months a year for it to pop in there and, and to go see different locations and to rent a bike, borrow a bike, do whatever it is, and to be able to do, see different places. And you're right, the photos are going to be gorgeous from that day, God will. Rabbi March, uh, good luck August 9th. I want to recommend everybody can uh, sponsor Rabbi Yoshua Marchuk or any of the riders by going to bike.ncsy.org, bike.ncsy.org. If you want to register for one of the routes, we suggest you do it now because, as Rabbi Marchuk mentioned, those are likely those spots are going to be gone by the end of the week, bike.ncsy.org. 
dot org. Um, so enjoy August 9th and good luck. Or for you, I guess it'll just be another day on the bike. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I don't know for you if bike at CSY is an additional challenge on your regular biking day, but whatever it is, I hope you do well. <laughs> thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing you on Sunday at Yeoman CSY. Oh, thank you so much. Phenomenal. Can't wait. Very nice. Uh, we'll see Rabbi Marchuk this coming Sunday. Uh, the show that we're doing is um, on Sunday is going to be played this coming Monday morning, JM the AM Monday. And um, and Rabbi Marchuk, of course, will be there uh, for Yom CSY in the big event, 8 o'clock on uh, Sunday night with Mordechai Shapiro and Benny Friedman, summer.ncsy.org slash Yom CSY. And again, for the uh, to sponsor a bicyclist or cyclist for August 9th, bike.ncsy.org. Rabbi Merrill Wine, uh, as much as we could do of the conclusion of the lecture on Rabbi Mayor Leibish Malbim from the series entitled The Challenge of Secularism at JM in the AM. The nobleman had a business, a pottery business, and before Pesach, the Jews used to come to buy new pots from him. So the Malbim said, put them in Cherem. The Malbim said, you're not allowed to buy pots from the nobleman since he cut down on the Arab. They couldn't buy pots. So the nobleman sued the Malbim in court for restraint of trade. He took him to the Romanian court, sued him for restraint of trade. The Malbim was acquitted, and the judge said the Malbim was 100% right and that the nobleman shouldn't have cut down the, the wires. But now the Malbim was swimming in a tremendous sea of controversy. And for Purim, the head of the Reform community sent him as a picture, sent him in the Shalach Monis, sent him a basket with a picture of the head of a pig. So the Malbim sent him back a picture of himself with a note. He said, thank you for the picture of yourself here. I'm sending you my picture. Again, you see the, uh, the, the, the type, the, the personal venom that's involved in this machlokas. Finally, in 1864, the reform community told the government, Romania is a strong Roman Catholic country, told the government that in the Malbim's commentary to, to the prophet Isaiah, he says insulting things about the church, about Christianity. The truth of the matter is, uh, he doesn't say insulting things. He just proves that the Christological passages, so to speak, which are attributed to the prophet Isaiah, that that's, that's a distortion and a lie and that the prophet never, never intended that and it doesn't even fit into the words and the whole thing is just made up. But in any event, now they hold the Malbim to court again. This time he was arrested and he was convicted of defaming the church. But the, under the pressure of Jews who paid a great deal of money uh, to the local uh, magistrate. They gave him 24 hours to get out of town. And the Malbim left, and he uh, ended up in Constantinople in Turkey for a period of time. From Constantinople, he then traveled to Paris, and he was in Paris for a period of time. He then traveled to Frankfurt am Main, where he was uh, met with Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch. He then was in Alsace-Lorraine and in Metz for a period of time. Wherever he went, though, controversy dogged him. Later in life, he met the Chofetz Chaim. He was an old man, and the Chofetz Chaim was a young, relatively young man. 
So he told the Chofetz Chaim, he said that on my tombstone you should write the epitaph, Al Korchecho Atochai, that, that I'm forced to live. Against my will, I'm forced to live. That was the epitaph that, he's, that, he, that he had in mind. That's how bitter his life was. In 1866, uh, a relative of his died and left them a large business, a wine-selling business. And the uh, Malbim in rejoiced. He resigned from the rabbinate. He moved to the town of Lenchitz, where the business was located. And he sat down to learn and to continue to write, and his wife undertook to run the business. And she hired a relative of hers, a cousin, to help her run the business, and he, over a period of a year, embezzled all of the money and destroyed the business and fled, and the, uh, and the Malbim was again forced to go back into the Rabonis. He went up on the bima and he said, I'm Mochel, the person who stole the money every penny. And I'm Mochelim, the heartache and everything. But I am not Mochelim that he forced me to go back into the rabbit. In 1870, we find him in Russia. Achenu Yisrael and Achenu Mechem, our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NachumSingle.com and the NachumSingle Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a Tuesday for us here at JM and the AM. My thanks to Rabbi Wine. His lecture is available at 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com. Remember, our friends at ArtScroll have every Rabbi Wine title at 15% off this week and free shipping if you use promo code RADIO. Uh, this was the uh, the lecture about the Malbum from the uh, series entitled The Challenge of Secularism. You can check it out. More lectures tomorrow. Also tomorrow, Abe Foxman, one time the leader of the Anti-Defamation League, survivor of World War II, has quite a story. He's also leading an initiative for Holocaust survivors with Met Council on Jewish Poverty. He joins us tomorrow morning, Erev Tishabov at 8 a.m. Eastern Time. Make sure to join us. Have a fabulous Tuesday. Till tomorrow, Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.